And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till three on this Friday as we kickstart a nice summer weekend. We have plenty to do over the next few hours before we get there. Coming up, the Golden State Warriors win another NBA championship. We'll break it all down. Plus, as the two new worlds of golf have come together, I got some thoughts on that with the U.S. Open going on. Shane Beamer was in town last night. We'll talk a little Gamecock football. Clemson introduced their new baseball coach yesterday. We'll get to that coming up later on with some sound. Plus, yesterday we talked about which team in the NFL could be like the Bengals of last year. Which team in college football could potentially be like the Bengals? Come out of nowhere to potentially reach the national championship, surprising everybody. We'll get to that later on this afternoon. Who does Vegas already like for certain college football games this year? We'll get to that. And we'll be all over the NBA Finals throughout the afternoon. We'll have a former player and a current player join us this afternoon. The athlete formerly known as Ron Artest, Meta Sanford Artest, will join the show again coming up in about 15 minutes. And former Orlando Magic forward Jonathan Isaac will join us around 2.30 this afternoon as we break down the NBA Finals. With you until 3, you can join the conversation throughout. 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show. 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. On Facebook at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com. Or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till 3 on this Friday, Trent's on the steel wheels. We both predicted Warriors in 6, so no surprises around here. Trent, good afternoon. How are you? Luke, I'm feeling absolutely phenomenal right now. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, at the start of the series, we both said Warriors in six. We've been doing great on our picks, on our player props. 3-0 and last night and Warriors money line. Are you kidding me? It was the writing on the wall, Luke. You never doubt the heart of a champion, and that's what the Golden State Warriors are. They did it last night. Absolutely phenomenal game. Got a little nervous. Got a little nervous towards the fourth quarter. I didn't know if the Celtics were going to turn it on, but experience beats inexperience. Great game. Happy for the Warriors that they get their uh, fourth championship in about eight years. Yeah, it's a big one. Let's talk about that game last night and the Warriors winning this championship. As I always say in the show, I love my industry. I love what I get to do for a living. It's not work. At the same time, I also hate a lot about my industry. I hate what a lot of it has become. And I hate a lot of the narratives and the fact that you need to have some sort of big opinion 
after each and every game or after every day, we need to fill 24 nowadays, right? 24 hours of airtime on TV and radio. You're trying to get clicks online, people to come to your website. You know, you're trying to get Twitter followers for your ego. You want to tweet out uh, controversial things, yada, yada, yada. But all this talk about Steph Curry, right? A lot of people have been using the phrase, has he cemented his legacy? I mean, what are we talking about? He didn't need to win this championship or finals MVP to already have his legacy intact. He's changed the game more than any player in a long, long time, probably since Magic Johnson 40 years ago, when suddenly now, right, bigger guys would start to bring the ball up the floor like LeBron James. Steph Curry's changed the game. Steph Curry's the greatest shooter we've ever seen. Steph Curry was already part of one of the best dynasties we've had. And last night was just the, the cherry on top. It was the icing. But Curry already had a tremendous legacy. He already was an all-time great. He just never gets fully appreciated. He wasn't recruited out of high school. He wanted to go to Virginia Tech, where his father played. Seth Greenberg was the coach. Curry was willing to walk on to the team. Greenberg wouldn't even take Curry as a walk-on. Greenberg gets very defensive about it nowadays. But he said no to Steph Curry. Didn't want him with this program. He went to Davidson. Had a great career at Davidson. And then in the NBA draft was taken seventh, which seems good. But then you look back and you see Johnny Flynn got taken ahead of Steph Curry. I'm a big Rubio guy, Ricky Rubio, right? But obviously, Steph Curry, a much better player. Rubio, another guard that was drafted ahead of Steph Curry. How did that work out? And then when Steph Curry won the MVP of the league, you know what happened? Even his own peers didn't appreciate him. As soon as Curry won the MVP, the NBA Players Association started their own award. I don't remember what they call it. They give out their own most valuable player amongst the players. Because they thought, Curry, MVP, there's no way that guy's the best player in the league. And when he won a bunch of finals, everybody said, well, you know, Kevin Durant's there. They're a super team. And then Kevin Durant leaves, and you could go look online. All the Warriors fans are posting it all around. Curry was referencing it last night in the postgame. Clay Thompson, a lot of people took their hacks at the Warriors, saying this dynasty is dead. Right, they're done. They're not going to win anything. There are all sorts of – they posted, uh, I saw, you know, the freezing, the cold takes, whatever it is. Uh, about, I think it was first take, when Steph Curry signed his four-year contract, and they said he's not going to win any championships over those four years. And Steph Curry mocked that last night in the post-game press conference. Even after winning championships, he was still being doubted. They were not favored this year, and once they reached the NBA Finals against the Celtics, they were still an underdog. As they fell behind 2-1, to one, everybody wrote off Golden State. Steph Curry has never been appreciated. Maybe now he will. After beating Boston last night without Kevin Durant, without being the number one seed, scoring over 30 points a game, being the MVP. Steph Curry is now one of five players all time to win multiple MVPs, now a finals MVP, to win a scoring title, and also have four, at least four NBA championships. One of five players to check all those boxes. The other players are Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Wilt Chamberlain, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, four of the all-time greats. Steph Curry is in company with those. And of those other four all-time greats, only Michael Jordan and then Steph Curry actually have a winning record in the NBA Finals. So when you look at resumes and compare what they've done from a personal and a team perspective, you can make a case that only Steph Curry and Michael Jordan have checked as many boxes as you really possibly can in the NBA. Finals MVP now, regular season MVP, scoring title, four championships running a dynasty. And speaking of Michael Jordan, 
Jordan dominated in the 90s, and he was the best player in his era. Other teams couldn't win anything because Michael Jordan stood in the way. Meanwhile, Steph is winning during LeBron's era. And we like to compare LeBron to Michael Jordan. These are the two best. Oh, LeBron's better than Jordan. Well, the big difference was Jordan was the gatekeeper, and he didn't let anybody in. The only time anybody else won a championship in the 90s was when Jordan was playing baseball and Elijah and the Rockets finally broke through or when Jordan finally retired for good at the end of the 90s and the Spurs got their first title. But Steph Curry, meanwhile, has put together a remarkable run in LeBron's league. And that's not some sort of indictment on LeBron. I'm not trying to turn this into a LeBron versus Jordan thing. It's more of a compliment to Steph Curry. Nobody could get past Jordan in the 90s. And there are a lot of good players. Steph Curry, while dealing with LeBron James's era, has been able to one-up him and have the best dynasty we've seen in quite some time. It'd be like if Olajuwon, Malone, Ewing, pick your favorite player, actually dominated the 90s and won four championships alongside Jordan. Right, Jordan was getting to the championship while they were winning a bunch too. But nobody could do it. Jordan had a stranglehold on the NBA in the 90s. And for as good as LeBron is, Steph Curry has been more successful at winning during the LeBron phase. Here was uh, Steph Curry after the game at the press conference, talking about how sweet it is to get number four, and, of course, that first finals MVP as well. This one hits different for sure. Just knowing what the last three years have meant, what it has been like <laughs> from injuries to – you know, changing on the guard and the rosters, wigs coming through, our young guys carrying the belief that we could get back to the stage and win, even if it didn't make sense to anybody when we said it. All that stuff matters. And now <clears throat> we got four championships, you know, me, Dre, Clay, and Andre. Finally got that bad boy. It's special, man, it's special. That bad boy he's referring to is the finals MVP trophy sitting up there with him at the podium. Yeah, that's the big one. Shouldn't be, but it is. And obviously Steph Curry acknowledging it last night. He knows what everybody was saying. And I'm sure it meant something even more special to him to pull that off. I'm sure that was the chip on the shoulder this series. Not only to go win a championship, but to also to shut up the last of the critics. There's not much left you could say now in the negative about Steph Curry. Last night was the best championship he and the Warriors have won. Right, when you look back at the other ones, two of them were with Kevin Durant. They should have won those championships. The first one, they won 73 games. They should have won that championship. Plus, the Cavs didn't have Kyrie or Kevin Love. They're all beat up right, in 2015. This one was different. This was not as the number one seed. This was not as the preseason favorite. This was when Klay Thompson still isn't quite 100%, and Draymond Green's a little over the hill, and Steph Curry's now 34 years old and scored over 30 points in this finals against the number one defense. He became the first player ever to beat the number one defense in the finals while averaging over 30 points per game. Another thing you could slap on the impressive resume of Steph Curry. And he did it without Kevin Durant and even without Klay Thompson for most of the series. And I know Wiggins played well. And Draymond Green, credit to Draymond because I was tough on him earlier this series. He was really good last night. That was the best game he's played probably in years. He stepped up big in a big spot. But man, for Steph Curry to get that fourth, that finals MVP to do it like this, so impressive, and the best of uh, his four championships. Here's his head coach, who obviously knows a thing or two about uh, winning with high-end players. Played with Michael Jordan in the 90s, now coaching Steph Curry through all these championships. Here's what Steve Kerr had to say last night after the win about his star, Steph Curry. Without him, none of this happens, you know, and that's not taking anything away from, um, 
Joe and Peter's ownership because they're amazing owners, uh, built an incredible organization. Bob Myers, a uh, hell of a GM, and, you know, uh, our players. We've had so many great players, but Steph ultimately is, you know, why this run has, has happened, um, much like Timmy in San Antonio. And so I'm happy for everybody, but I'm thrilled for Steph. To me, this is his crowning achievement in what what's already been an incredible career. Yeah, sure is. Curry didn't need it, but boy, does it help, right, to get that finals MVP, that fourth championship without Durant, and he played really well throughout the series. By the way, Steve Kerr referenced the Spurs. Yeah, you can't forget, he won a championship with Duncan and the Spurs, too. That guy, he has nine championships. He needs one more for that last pinky for all his rings. As a player, now a coach as well. He was a good executive, too, when he was running the Suns. Steve Kerr and what he's done, right, goes down with the all-time greats in uh, NBA history, certainly as both a player and a coach. But for Steph Curry, the all-important finals MVP and championship finished off last night in Boston, by the way. That's another nice touch to it all, right, on that floor. I know it's not the old Boston Garden, but it's still a bit of a historic place. And to beat the Celtics on their court like that in six games was pretty impressive for Curry and the Warriors. We'll talk about Jason Tatum later on. You can always get in touch with the show. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com, click on our show page, send a message to the show. Dale was asking about Jason Tatum. I think it's a good question. I'll get to it later on because we have to talk about Tatum and the Celtics. And we'll talk about the finals throughout the afternoon, but when we come back, we'll be joined by somebody who won an NBA championship. You may know him as Ron Artest. He now goes by Meta Sandiford Artest, and he'll be with us next to talk about the Warriors' championship win. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. As the Warriors get another NBA Finals last night, beating the Celtics in Game 6 in Boston. And joining us now is a fellow NBA champion. Meta Sanford Artest is with us, spent almost 20 years in the NBA, former All-Star, former NBA champ. He's with us now. Meta, good afternoon. How are you? Everything is great, man. Uh, can you? Can, my mic is good. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, we got you. Beautiful, beautiful. How's SC for you? Hey, everything's good here. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, you, Absolutely. You won a championship in the NBA, of course, so take us through this. What are the Warriors feeling like today as they wake up once again as NBA champions after that win last night? Well, that's eight times to the finals. We're talking about a dynasty. Um, you know, um, I, they, they have the privilege to join um, the Bulls. Right, they have the privilege of joining the Bulls dynasty, um, and they're probably probably one of the top three uh, dynasties, probably in the history of basketball. You know, when you talk about the Celtics, then you talk about the Bulls when they had that run with Jordan, and then you talk about the Warriors. The Lakers had some runs too. The Lakers had the runs with, with Kobe. I wish that if that would have lasted a little bit longer, that would have been a real dynasty. But that was like a short-lived dynasty. And obviously the Spurs is another, you know, kind of not a dynasty. They was in and out. 
right, over here, they're very consistent. Uh, LeBron is probably a dynasty himself. Probably He's probably number four um, on that list. But, you know, congratulations to the Warriors. Yeah, absolutely. Congrats. Yeah, they got another championship. Look, I, I, I agree with you there, and it speaks to Steph Curry and the career he's had. You played against Steph Curry. Did this series change anything? A lot of people said he needed that finals MVP. He needed another championship without Durant. He did. Yeah? He needed it. He needed it because if he didn't get a finals MVP, I, I, that would have that would have hurt his chances of being, you know, in, in, in that special group, um, you know, top five, top ten all time. You know, now he's there. You see what I'm saying? He's there now. So, I mean, that kid is incredible. That that man is incredible. Yeah, you you played against them, of course. Your final game in the NBA was against those Warriors. What makes that Warriors team, or Steph Curry, what, what makes them so impressive? Well, I think mm, yeah, a lot of people's impressive. I, I would say what makes yeah, impressive, dangerous. I think um, their movement, obviously their ability to shoot the ball is incredible. And then their movement um, and different things like that. Uh, they, they they attack with the shot. You can't give them no space, and it's extremely difficult to guard. You you got to really put up buckets, you know, to beat the Warriors. And you got to be sound. And they're a very good defensive team, right? So it's really difficult to deal with that. Yeah, I could imagine. Now you you know you uh, as we talk with Meta Sanford Artest. Um, you know, you were a guy that early on in your career, you were scoring a bunch of points, and then into your 30s, you took on maybe a little bit of a different role. For Steph Curry, it seems like as good as he is, he's also a little egoless, right? He's able to have Kevin Durant come in. He's able to have other guys play a big role in the offense. Uh, how important do you think it is for a star like Steph Curry to, um, you know, be able to work so well with others like that? I mean, that, that's what makes him unique. That's what. That's why he's one of the greatest players. It's, it's more than just athleticism. It's more than just your skills and your ability to score is also your ability ability to win, right? And he has the ability to win. I mean, it just separates him from from a lot of people. You know, everybody's built differently and think differently, and, and Stefan's one of those people that he's prepped individually, and he's a team player, and and you really you rarely see a player like that. So, you know, he's definitely setting the blueprint on how to play basketball moving forward. On the other side, for Jason Tatum, obviously he didn't play his best throughout this series. What stood out to you about why Tatum may have had uh, some struggles here in the NBA Finals? I don't think he struggled. I think he was playing more defense. When you're chasing the Warriors around and and then you have to score on the other end, something's going to have to give. And I think his legs were tired. I don't think he was prepared. And I think if he's in better shape, uh, you know, really elite, elite shape, I think he'll be fine, but it was really difficult guarding Clay, then Draymond pass and faking to the basket, kicking. You got to close out. It's a lot of work. So I think he was a little more fatigued than, than actually uh, playing bad. Uh, for the uh, the Celtics, you know, a lot of people talked about the Warriors have so much more finals experience than Boston. You won your first finals appearance. Now I know, of course, you were playing alongside Kobe, who had been there before. But you'd gone through it before. What is it like that first NBA Finals? Do you think the inexperience played a role for Boston at all this series? Yeah, definitely. Right, you got the experienced team versus, you know, um, the non-experienced team. That's always going to play a part. These guys been there. They know what to expect. They've been there. This is their eighth time. So there's really nothing new. If they lose, you know, they'll probably try to come back next year. 
but they definitely understand that they have to win. And, you know, Stephen Curry put himself in position to get number five, number six. You know, you know he's, he's back. You know, um, the Warriors are back. So we might see it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of years. Yeah, it sure is. Now, of course, when you won that finals, I think back to Kobe may not have been at his best in that game seven uh, for his standards. You made the big play. Uh, you know, when Steph Curry had a little bit of a slow game a couple nights ago, Andrew Wiggins stepped up and was huge. What changes have you seen from Andrew Wiggins where, you know, in, in this playoffs he was playing like the guy the Timberwolves thought they were getting when he originally came into the league? Um, he, 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 he played very well. I thought he had a balanced um, I thought he had a balanced game, a balanced season. Um, I thought that, you know, he, he learned really what it takes to be a champion, and now he can add that to his individual game. He he is averaging 24, you know, I think for his career. But he probably needed to see another side of basketball, which is the winning side. And now that, he, now that he's got that experience, you know, it, it could be it could be scary, you know, next year for for a lot of teams. Hey, uh, let me ask you: stepping away from the NBA Finals, we talk with Meta Sanford, our test. You know, you played at St. John's in the late '90s. Let me sneak in a random college sports question: Do you like the name, image, and likeness, and the uh, opportunity for these athletes to make money? Do, do, is that something you would have liked back in the '90s at St. John's? I mean, yeah, definitely. I remember, I remember times just needed money in college, and you know, but it, we just dealt with it. But I think it was something that people could have benefited from and and now i hear people in college athletes are making tons of cash which is great because they deserve it you know they have they have value and i'm really really happy for them you know you're from uh new york city originally are, are you uh now you an la guy you staying out there for good or are you ever getting back to new york um i'm my, my all my kids are in school out here so I, i'm just like out here kind of finishing up that part and then i'm, I'm slowly making my way back to new york city um, I haven't been back in a, in a while, but I'm slowly kind of making my way back. I got you. As we talk with Meta, uh, Meta Sandiford, our test. Before we let you go, you know, you're an interesting guy. You're up to a lot of different things now in your post-playing days. I do have to ask you because I don't know a whole lot about this. Let me ask you about this NFT community and the Meta Panda Club because I know you had the uh, challenge game this week with uh, Bone Collector. What are you up to with uh, the Meta Panda Club? Yeah, you know, I've been getting into digital uh, marketing over the last uh, seven years. So Meta Panda Club is an NFT that we launched with a with an NFT company. We actually have a couple more NFTs that's launching. Uh, Xverse Exports is a utility that we also built for for uh, our NFT holders, uh, mainly focused on basketball. So our NFT holders get a chance to participate in games, whether it's coaching, whether it's wanting to be a general manager of a team, um, representing a team, being an ambassador, giving input, voting rights for players and different things like that. We're a local league in Los Angeles. And we're expanding, so uh, definitely go to the Meta Panda Club with one T, Meta with one T. Uh, you can purchase your NFTs uh, and follow at Xvs Exports, Xvs Exports, and then we can keep you updated. But it's been great. I've been having a good time, you know, staying close around the game. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing before we let you go, Meta, for the Celtics, you know, they, they lost this championship. We always assume, ah, eh, they'll just be back. But, you know, it's hard to get to the NBA Finals. Uh, what do you expect for the Celtics moving forward? Should we anticipate, you know, a bunch more appearances for them in the Finals here in the future? Um, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, next year's a new season. 
you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen, but next year is a new season. We know a lot of teams that probably could have made it to the finals that didn't make it, so now they get a chance to rest, and we got to wait and see for next season. But I don't think we know who's going to win next year. I, I, I don't really know. Yeah. Right. And we, we just wrapped up this year, so we'll see what happens next year. The Warriors win the finals last night. He's met a Sandiford Artest, played for almost 20 years in the league, won a finals, former All-Star. Matt, appreciate the time, as always. Appreciate you joining us again. Uh, we'll catch up with him, sure, sometime down the road. Yeah, I got to get to those beaches down there. I've never been to a beach down there. I heard they're really nice. Hey, absolutely. Whenever, whenever you make it to South Carolina, you let me know. We'll hang out at the beach. Awesome, awesome. All right, see you later. I right, appreciate it. Take care. Met a Sandiford Artest. Appreciate the time from him. He joined us last year around the finals, too. I think last year, he, I think he was working out last year when he came on the show with us. I, he may have been working out again today. I don't know. But I appreciate the time for Meta. I love having him on the show. Uh, interesting guy who obviously played in, uh, in the finals before, played with Kobe, played big games in the NBA. Appreciate the time from him. And when he makes it to South Carolina, we'll go uh, hop on uh, some surfboards out there, too. By the way, that's the interesting thing, that whenever we have people on the show, they always, right, Ann Ann Virg said something similar on Monday about vacationing here. Whenever we have people on, Obviously, Charleston, South Carolina, it's a great place. You know that. That's why you live here. But whenever we have uh, people on the show, they always say that. They always uh, talk about uh, the good things they've heard or they want to be here or, or they've been here and they love it. Everybody loves Charleston. What's not to love? So when Adnan Verk comes this summer, we'll have a beach day. When Meta Sanford makes it, we'll have a beach day. Whoever else wants to come, we'll, we'll have a big Morrow Midday show party on the beach with all these guys someday. When we come back, hey, um, the U.S. Open's going on. Right, so in Boston, not only did you have the NBA Finals last night, we got a major event going on. We'll talk about the NBA Finals throughout the afternoon. Jonathan Isaac will join us uh, in the final hour, about two hours from now, around 2.30, to talk about the Finals. But when we come back, I want to talk about the other event, big event that's been going on in Boston. The U.S. Open with the Live Golf Tour, or whatever you want to call it, the Live Golfers coming back together with the PGA Golfers, and how the PGA can really learn from, uh, something from all of this. We'll get to that when we come back. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Meta Sandiford Artest. Formerly known as Ron Artest, Meta World Peace. I think it was Meta World Peace when he came on last year. Sandiford Artest, whatever it is, we appreciate the time from him. Uh, breaking down the NBA Finals, always enjoy having him on the show. And if you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Appreciate the time from Meta. Last segment, talking NBA Finals. We'll continue to talk about the NBA Finals, but there's another big event going on. In fact, yesterday, if you were a Boston sports fan, you could have gone to the U.S. Open. I guess in the morning you'd have to go. Then you had Red Sox baseball at one thirty at Fenway. Then you had the NBA Finals right for the Celtics last night at 9 p.m. Now, I don't know how easy it would have been to pull that off. I also don't know how like realistic that is. Maybe if you have a lot of money, you could go to an NBA Finals game 
a major event, and then, you know, a random baseball game, but tickets are pretty expensive around Fenway. That'd be quite the expensive day, but what a day that would be. Also be a long day. You probably want to sleep in today. That'd be a lot of fun. I've seen some tweets from the past two days saying, right, this crowd is dead at the U.S. Open. Well, number one, I'm I'm not surprised because yesterday I'm sure everybody was gearing up for the Celtics NBA Finals game in town, and it was the first round of them. You know, by Sunday, maybe they'll be into the uh, U.S. Open. Yesterday, it's like, ah, it's just starting. We'll get out there this week. The Celtics are playing. And today, the reason why I've seen more tweets, you know, somebody said it sounded like a church there this morning. Yeah, because the Celtics just lost last night. They're all in mourning. They're heartbroken up there in Boston. They don't want to go out and watch golf on an early Friday morning. They're crushed from last night. We'll talk about the NBA Finals um, throughout the afternoon. Jonathan Isaac will join us uh, about two hours from now, member of the Orlando Magic, to talk about it. And we'll get into Jason Tatum a little bit later on as well. But, you know, the idea going in was that it's hard to win on that floor in Boston. I mean, maybe back in the day, eh, they've lost, maybe not in the Finals, they've lost some big games in the playoffs. I was there, I don't remember the year, probably 2012, 2013, when LeBron James went off in Boston to win the conference finals in game six, and I was there that night, and that was the most – I've seen Michael Jordan live a couple times. Uh, That was probably the most impressive performance I've ever seen in person. Game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. I'd have to look up the exact year. I think it was 2012, maybe 2011. And LeBron went off, and he had like 40 points in Boston and silenced everybody, and he was just incredible. He couldn't be stopped that night. And that was similar. It wasn't the finals, but it was game six conference finals against Garnett, Pierce, Ray Allen – And LeBron was the best guy on the floor. Steph Curry, somewhat similar last night. LeBron was more dominant in this game about a decade ago. But Steph Curry also, right, went into Boston, Game 6, NBA Finals. So we did play that clip yesterday, Windhorse. A lot of these stats, by the way, you need a little more context. Like how many games have they, how many elimination games have they won in Boston since 1985, at least in the Finals? They haven't been in a ton of Finals since then. Uh, They've only won one Finals in the last, uh, you know, 30-plus years. Just like the idea that Steph Curry is the first guy in 50 years to beat the number one defense in the finals and average over 30 points. Well, how often does the number one defense even reach the finals? But I digress. Point being, uh, you know, Curry last night, impressive win, and also Boston. It's kind of like Lambeau. We talk about it with Lambeau as well. Tough place to go in there and win in the playoffs. Well, I mean, the Packers are 500 at home this century in the playoffs. Not really, you know, Maybe it was tough back in the 70s and the 80s. Things are a little different now. We have to uh, change our uh, opinion or standards. Same with Boston. It used to be really tough. At the old Boston Garden, there was no air conditioning. Larry Bird and McHale, yeah, it used to be tough. They were a good team. That was a tough place to play. In recent years, eh, Celtics are not a good home team this year. It's not as tough to go in there anymore. But I digress. So anyways, point being, uh, the crowds at the U.S. Open, getting back on topic, have not been great. Yeah, they're, they're all heartbroken today over the Celtics last night. But I've been saying this since the whole live drama started in the golf world, and now the two sides come back together this weekend for the U.S. Open. And Phil Mickelson was terrible yesterday. Uh, we'll see how he does today and if he hangs around for the weekend. bunch of no-names are at the top of the leaderboard right now. I've always said competition is a good thing. You know, Vince McMahon's in the headlines right now for the wrong reasons. But I grew up a wrestling fan. And when I actually stopped paying attention to wrestling, yeah, it was probably because of age. I got old enough where I realized, like, okay, I'm kind of beyond this now. But also, the big thing when I got out of wrestling was back in the day, 
in the 90s, you had three different corporations. I loved all three. You had McMahon and the WWF. You had WCW. You had ECW, which was the, that was the underground one. Right? That was the one that uh, only the cool kids knew about, ECW. Real hardcore in Philadelphia. Loved ECW. But then Vince McMahon bought out both ECW and WCW. Isn't it great to be in a position where you are so powerful, you could just buy out the competition? Anytime a competitor comes, like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just buy the company. No competition. And then they became, of course, the WWE, and they've had no competition for a number of years until now the Khan family has started up AEW in recent years, and they're doing pretty good over there, which I think is a good thing for the wrestling fans or the WWE fans because for a long time wrestling became real lame because there's no, nobody keeping McMahon in check. He could do whatever he wanted. He had no competition. It was a monopoly. I've ranted similarly about uh, Ticketmaster. They could charge whatever they want with all their fees. There's no competition. What are you going to do? Where else are you going to get your tickets? From a scalper? Right? They could charge whatever fees they want because there's nobody else. And when somebody came along, Live Nation, they bought them out, just like uh, McMahon. Buy out the competition. Now you're still a monopoly. No one's competing with you. You can do whatever you want. So competition is always a good thing. It keeps you honest. keeps you on your toes. you got to come up with fresh ideas. And I've said about baseball, and baseball doesn't really have any competition. Baseball and golf are the two sports that have kind of fallen behind the times. you got to update some things. But when you look back in the other sports world, competition has always been good. In fact, when you look at today's modern sports that we love, they really look very much like their competitors from years past. It's funny how that works. Right, like the NFL. Think back to the original USFL, if you're old enough to go through the USFL in the 80s. What was the USFL like? Wide open passing attacks. They um, had big salaries. More than the, They were paying guys more than the NFL. USFL was kind of like the Live Golf Tour. They came along, and they were willing to shell out big money to steal some of the big names coming out of college. Remember, they got Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker won the Heisman. He went to the USFL, not the NFL. Because the USFL was going to let him come out of college sooner than the NFL and pay him more. In fact, they got three straight he- Imagine that. Three straight Heisman winners went to the USFL. Imagine a world today. Three straight Heisman winners. They go to play in the CFL. Then the NFL, which, by the way, Canadian Football League started last night. Got it on the DVR. Looking forward to watching that this weekend. Love CFL. Especially this time of year when there's no other football going on. I don't care about the new USFL's playoff. I'd rather watch Canadian football. Right, but imagine a world, right? Three straight Heisman winners. Turn down the NFL. They'd rather go to the USFL. So the USFL back in the 80s, wide open passing attacks before that became a thing. Big time salaries. And they started to take guys early out of college. The NFL still had a rule. You had to go through all your years of college. Herschel Walker did not want to play his senior year at Georgia. He didn't have to. So he went to the USFL. Now the NFL, what do they do? They change that rule. Okay, three years. No longer four years. You got to be three years removed from high school. The NFL today... Very much like the USFL. Big-time salaries, wide-open passing attacks. Guys can come out of college a year early. That was the USFL before the NFL in the 80s. The NFL has now turned into to the USFL. By the way, the XFL has also had an influence. What did the XFL do? They uh, got rid of extra points. The NFL pushed their extra point back. The NFL is trying to limit the kickers a little bit. They want the offenses out in the field. That was the XFL thing 20 years ago. What else did the XFL do? They were the first to give you in-game interviews, which you may hate as a fan. You don't want to see your coach or manager interviewed, but we see it in the NBA all the time. Major League Baseball, the first to do that was the XFL. Other leagues have stolen that. What else did the XFL do? They were on NBC. Right now, when you want to watch Sunday Night Football, where do you go? NBC. The XFL was first on NBC. And then after the XFL, 
NBC said, actually, you know what? We kind of like this football thing. And the NFL said, boy, do we have the product for you. They're on NBC now for Sunday Night Football. So when I look at the NFL, they've borrowed some things from their competitors. They got onto NBC. More access. Hard Knocks started right after the XFL. That was a big thing of the XFL. McMahon wanted you to get to know the players. They would interview players during the game. They would have cameras in the locker room. It was all about access. What happened right after the XFL? Hard Knocks, which gives you what? Access. Shows you behind the scenes. So the NFL has always been able to look at their competitors and say, you know what? That's a good idea what they're doing. Let's take that. And the NFL has become a lot like the USFL. Wide open passing attacks, big salaries, players coming out of college a little bit early to get into the league now. That's what the NFL is today. Basketball. We just had the NBA Finals last night. The Warriors won. How do they do it? With a lot of three-point shooting. Right, The Splash Brothers. What does the NBA become? Very offensive. What is this year's NBA like? I know the Warriors are a dynasty, but when you look around the NBA, there's not a super team anymore, regardless of what Golden State just did. There's a lot of talented players on a bunch of different teams spread throughout the league. What does that sound like? The ABA of the 70s. Who first started the three-pointer? wasn't the NBA. It was the ABA. The ABA had the three-pointer in the 70s. In fact, the NBA originally said, no, that's, we don't need that. That's a gimmick. And it took the NBA a few years after the, they, they swallowed up the ABA. Still took them an extra about four years before they came around on the idea of the three-pointer. Now, what is the NBA all about? Three-pointers. The ABA had that back in the 70s. And the ABA had all the different stars. With an artist, Gilmore, and a Rick Barry, and uh, Dr. J started there. Bunch of different, they didn't have some sort of power. NBA in the 70s, ABA, same idea, right, in the 70s. Bunch of good players that were just spread out on different teams. Higher scoring games, three-point shots. That's what the NBA has become today, a lot like the ABA back in the day. And what's interesting about both these two leagues, they figured if we're going to steal the eye away from that league, what do we need to do? we got to be more offensive. So that's why they implemented the three-pointer. That's why the USFL said we got to start throwing it more. That's more exciting. we got to be more exciting than the NFL. That was the connecting trend. And here we are all these years later. The NBA today, a lot like the ABA back in the day. The NFL today, a lot like the USFL back in the day. So I bring all this up because for the first time, the PGA or the PGA Tour has some serious competition here with the Live Golf Tour. And they all came together this weekend. They're playing in the U.S. US Open. I've given you the numbers before. The number of golfers in this country has gone down every year since 1997, right? Golf, like baseball, they're trying to find ways to keep up. Baseball's changing their rules. Golf should change some things as well to adapt. And Live Golf Tour had their first event this past weekend. I'll tell you what, I don't know. Maybe creating a little more urgency, three days instead of four isn't too bad. Maybe the shotgun starts is pretty good. Instead of waiting around all day, like, uh, he doesn't tee off till two. It's kind of nice. Event starts, everybody's out in the course. You can watch everybody right away. You don't have to spend as much time around the TV all day. The event's not going on for 12 hours, asking for your attention all day and all weekend long. No, it's three days. We get in and out, and we put everybody out there at the same time. Now, for the final round of Sunday, probably not ideal. I like how the uh, PGA structures their Sundays or really all these golf events structure their uh, Sundays going based off of the leaderboard. Uh, that's more ideal so that at the end of the day, you have the most important golfers you know, finishing up instead of some random guys. You want the best for last, like a game seven. But I kind of like the idea of you know shotgun start. Everybody's out there right away, three days instead of four. It's a little bit quicker throughout the day. They're not out golfing, uh, waiting for everybody to tee off, staggered throughout the afternoon. So it takes you know uh, 12 hours every day that you're waiting around. Then you have weather issues, and, ah, oh, it's too dark. You're going to have to come back tomorrow. And, you know, just uh, nowadays, urgency is what winning, is what is uh, winning. 
I don't think the Live Golf Tour goes anywhere. I think it's going to be fascinating to continue to see these two sides battle. But I also look back in, in the past, and I see these leagues that have always been willing to adapt to their competitors. Never been too stubborn to say, like, I don't know, no, no. right? They're never going to beat us. Are you crazy? The USFL? What do they think? They're, we're the NFL. They're crazy over there. Even the NBA originally said three-point line? Oh, what a gimmick. The ABA, yeah, they need a three-point line to try to compete with us. Well, then a couple years later, you added a three-point line. Now the game's all about three-pointers. Oddly enough, the ABA was kind of ahead of their time. Same with the USFL. But that's what these leagues have become. And so if I'm the PGA Tour, is these two sides battle out there, war of words, whatever is going to go down this weekend. Right, if I'm the PGA Tour, I'm looking at some of the things they're doing. I'm not afraid to maybe borrow some of the ideas to adapt, to change some things, to update our game, to try to keep up as well. Right, boxing, UFC, they've dealt with this too. Not a direct competitor per se, but they're both in the fighting world. Obviously, it's a different brand of fighting. But UFC came along, really put, has put a dent into boxing. And UFC had a, uh, you know, they've been really good for, like, women fighters. Well, boxing has tried to get into that world recently, too. Like, yeah, you know, I kind of like that. We open ourselves up to more people, more viewers. And then we could get women involved in the sport, like UFC has done. Or at least just have more talent to choose from. Similar idea. The PGA Tour, same idea. All right, we could talk about blood money, the Saudis, this and that, how bad they are. All true, Sure. But if you're the PGA Tour, you probably should be keeping one eye over there and seeing, like, okay, what can we do to keep up or say, what are they doing? That's pretty interesting. Instead of just being so stubborn and turning your back and saying, oh, those jerks over there, we want nothing to do with these guys. I'm not saying you work with them, but you have to come up with some sort of ideas to either keep up or stay ahead or even, hey, heck, steal some of their ideas for all I care. The NFL, the NBA did, and that's how they survived. That's how they've gotten to the point today. They look a lot like those competitors from years ago. PGA Tour may have to do something similar. We'll see how Mickelson does today and whoever wins this whole thing uh, over the weekend. And, of course, uh, anything of, of note will break down on Monday. When we come back, we'll wrap up Hour 1. It's the Morning Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up hour one of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Was giving uh, some thoughts last segment on the golf world. Bob Costas was on, I think it was CNN. He had some pretty strong words over the Live Golf Tour. I thought it was actually pretty good. You can go find the video. It's like a seven-minute uh, video, seven-minute segment with him on TV uh, this week. Costas also had some strong words uh, for the wrestling world way back when. You may remember an awkward interview he did with Vince McMahon. And Vince McMahon kind of, like, threatened Bob Costas during the interview about, like, I don't know, 20 years ago. And Costas has always been anti-wrestling and anti-Vince McMahon. He's not a McMahon guy. Vince McMahon has gotten himself into some trouble these days. He's had to step aside uh, from running the WWE. If you haven't seen, he had uh, an affair with uh, an employee and then uh, paid, like, $3 million in hush money. And now it's being investigated, his misconduct allegations, and he has stepped aside. I also saw a story from yesterday that Missouri State rescinded their offer to um, this player, Otis 
Wea after learning of a sexual assault investigation with him. So you got Vince McMahon who had a consensual relationship with somebody, paid her his own money. He's stepping aside from his own company. This may be the end of Vince McMahon with the WWE. His daughter's running things, so eventually, I mean, essentially Vince will, I'm sure, be in her ear with everything. You have uh, Missouri State, I thought, did the right thing, where just simply an investigation into one case of sexual assault. They said, yeah, we don't want this guy coming to our team. And yet, we still wait on Deshaun Watson, where all cases may not have been consensual. And instead of maybe stepping away from his company, he gets the largest contract in NFL history. And we still wait on the punishment for Deshaun in a situation involving 26 women. I thought it was an interesting uh, maybe paradox this week going on in the sports world. That is if you want to include the WWE in the sports world. When we come back, Shane Beamer was in town. We'll talk about the Gamecocks next. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get back to the NBA Finals coming up later on as the Warriors get another championship. Plus, in a few minutes, Shane Beamer was in town last night. We'll talk about the Gamecocks. A little State of the Union for Clemson and South Carolina. I think what's interesting is Clemson kind of expect things to be the same as last year from a personnel perspective or like the identity of the team. South Carolina is a little bit different. I think uh, they'll be changing in a lot of areas. I'll explain what I mean coming up here in just a few moments. Plus, Clemson introduced their new baseball coach. We'll hear a little bit from him in a little bit as well. Hey, next week is Donor Appreciation Week. I'm going to be off, uh, heading out of here after the show today to go give some plasma once again. Donate some plasma, and then uh, I'll be hanging out next week with CSL Plasma. I'll be doing my show from CSL Plasma in North Charleston on Monday. And then also on Thursday as well. They love me over there, let me tell you. Because I, as I always say, there's only so many things I do well in life. But I, uh, I do great at donating blood. I got great, they tell me, I got good flow is what they say. So, you know, whenever I, that's, my, that's always my pickup line. You can't tell by looking at me, but I, have, I got great blood flow. Let me tell you, you'll be lucky to have this blood flow in your relationship. So I give great blood or plasma, same idea. So I'll be heading over there this afternoon to uh, donate plasma, and we'll be out there next week for a couple of shows with CSL Plasma because next week is Donor Appreciation Week all week long. Uh, all week long. So I'll give you more information. There'll, there'll be food trucks at CSL Plasma next week for Donor Appreciation Week and 
They have two different locations in North Charleston. They'll be giving away things all week long. So I'll give you more information all of uh, next week, and we'll be out there, of course, on Monday after the weekend. But I'm heading over there in a couple of hours to go give some plasma at CSL Plasma. I did it last year. Uh, we talked about it in the air last year. I mean, it's just like donating blood. If you're somebody who's donated blood before, right, the plasma is really not much different. The process is different. For you, the experience really isn't much different. It's a little bit longer. It takes a little bit longer, but it's, you know, they give you a little bit like a, you're like on a bed. It's pretty comfortable. You sit there. You bring your iPad. It's all good. So I'll be doing that later on to kick off the weekend, settle, settle myself down with some plasma donation. Looking forward to it. I'll be out there with the folks next week a couple of days. Hey, Shane Beamer was in town last night. Now, to take you behind the curtain, we had a little, uh, we had some technical issues here at the station last night that made Trent had to race back here. But in your time, actually, how did things go yesterday uh, over there in uh, North Charleston with uh, the Gamecock folks and and Bobby at uh, Holy City Brewing? It was awesome. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I left, it was packed to the gills, and uh, I didn't get to hear any of the coaches speak, obviously, because of the technical issues. You know, business comes first, obviously. Had to run back here, make sure everything was okay. But it was great. I mean, it was packed to the gills. They had drinks flowing. There was food. It seemed like a good time. Bobby was enjoying himself. You know, everybody was having a good time. It was a great event. Beautiful space out there at the Holy City Brewing uh, Company, the Porter Room, I believe it was called. Mm -hmm. Absolutely gorgeous out there. It was great. It was great to be out there right next to the water. It was awesome. Yeah, it looked like uh, from the photos I saw, at least for the actual event, it was a bit of a packed house. Yeah, it was. It, it was uh, from like 5.30 to 6. It got packed very quickly in the bar line. Got to very long, very yeah, long. I can imagine. So hopefully if you were out there, if you're a Gamecock fan there last night to hear from Coach Beamer and uh, Lamont Paris, hopefully you enjoyed yourself. Saw Bobby. Saw Trent. Saw somebody, a young kid running out, a young man running out of the place. Oh, not running, sprinting, <laughs> sprinting out of yeah. the the play through the back door and uh, going through the parking lot like a madman. All the yeah. uh, all the news crews were kind of looking at me as I was sprinting in my khakis to uh, to my vehicle. Yeah, are we missing a story right now? What's going on? <laughs> That's what they thought. He looked like Ray Allen last night running away from me all those years ago, <laughs> jumping into his limo, and I still love Ray. Um. Yeah, Beamer was in town uh, last night. Uh, hopefully you're out there and uh, heard him speak and Lamont Paris and had a good time if you're a Gamecock fan over in North Charleston. Yeah, I think it's interesting for South Carolina. And by the way, I saw it. Beamer said he got his identity stolen this offseason. That's tough. Trent, you ever have some sort of issue like that before? Yeah, I have actually. You, you really? remember? You remember? Uh, we were doing the show one time, yeah. and my my social media accounts got hacked, right? And yep. so my entire phone got hacked actually. So yeah, there was about uh, there was about a Ten hour period there where I'd kind of lost everything, but Jeez. the great folks at all the social media companies were able to get my account. The only thing was the Instagram account. The in, they they got into my Instagram account and uh, so I temporarily disabled it. Yeah, and they they disabled it completely. Whoever hacked it, so uh, I had to make a new one. But everything got back to me. All my banking uh, stuff got Good. back to me. So yeah, but that's that is the worst feeling in the world. I'm like, sure it, it is the scariest feeling in the world because somebody else is on your phone with everything in your life is on there yeah that's one of my, like uh, my biggest fears is like the fear of waking up one day and looking at my bank account or something and realizing wait a minute what's going on oh somebody stole my identity now look you don't want my identity but uh <laughs> that's always a big so anyway shane beamer i saw that little anecdote that uh somebody stole his identity this offseason so hopefully everything worked out there because that is always a nightmare for these people they ruin your credit and everything um so anyways that's just a random side anecdote. But I think it's interesting. When I look at the two teams, the two uh, Power 5 teams in state, Clemson and South Carolina, 
What I find fascinating about this is that for both teams this year, they're both coming off years last season where they're in different positions. Clemson was winning national championships. South Carolina's trying to rebuild. And so South Carolina had a successful year last year, an exciting year. Clemson, you know, Clemson fans, I know by, by the time the season ended, you, you were probably feeling a little better. Clemson fans are spinning it maybe in a positive. But compared to the start of the season to where Clemson wound up at the end of the season playing for Cheez-Its in Orlando, it was a disappointing year. But what I find interesting about these two teams that I think Clemson coming into this year has the same questions, and they're going to be very similar to last year's team. Defense is going to be really good. The big question, once again, just like last year, quarterback. Last year, the offense was such a struggle for Clemson. And their defense, they had the second-best defense in the country. And yet, they lost three games, which for them recently has been a lot. But also, you have to just think back to their wins. Their struggles were wins. They had so many one-possession games. They beat Florida State by only 10 points. They only beat Georgia Tech by one. A lot of close games because their offense couldn't run away from anybody. Kept uh, everybody in the game. And I think this year it's going to be exactly the same for Clemson. I think their defense is going to be really good. I have concerns about the offense. And if DJ plays better this year, Clemson will be better. And if DJ plays like he did last year, Clemson's going to have the same, the same type of season as they did a year ago. Now, the one potential change to all of this would be if you make a move midseason to Cade Klubnick and he is some sort of star right away, and now you have a dynamic quarterback. That's the one thing that – that's the big unknown. Otherwise, this year's team, I think, is going to be very similar to last year's team. Great defense, not much of a prolific offense, questions at the quarterback position that may hold you back week to week. Even if you win games, it may not be as uh, decisive as uh, we're used to at Clemson when you had a Trevor Lawrence, even a Deshaun Watson, um, even a Kelly Bryant for a large part over the past couple of years. South Carolina, though, however, to me, is kind of the opposite, where for South Carolina – I think this year's team could be very different from last year's team. Last year, the big strength was their de- they were kind of like uh, Clemson. Their defense was sneaky good last year, South Carolina, all things considered, especially compared to the years prior, ironically. You get rid of Will Muschamp, a defensive coach. You bring in Shane Beamer, more of a special team slash offensive guy, and the defense got better. Bit of an indictment to Will Muschamp. But the defense was really good for South Carolina last year. The offense, however, was pretty atrocious. Second worst in the SEC in yards per play and the most turnovers in the SEC. Now, of course, they used four different quarterbacks. A couple of those quarterbacks shouldn't have even been playing in the SEC, but they were. And yet at the end of the year, South Carolina won a bowl game, finished with a winning record. So now you come in and you replace those quarterbacks with the Spencer Rattler. Plenty of reasons to be excited and optimistic about this year and think the offense is going to be a lot better. And you feel, you figure, if you're a Gamecock fan, we went 7-6 and six last year with maybe the worst offense in the conference, or at least the worst offense outside of Vanderbilt in the SEC. We went 7-6 and six last year using four different quarterbacks. 7-6 and six while playing in the toughest conference in football. Now we have Spencer Rattler. And Rattler, I know he may not be viewed as the same guy we, we thought he was just even a year ago, but at one time we were talking about him being the number one pick and a Heisman winner at Oklahoma. And, yes, South Carolina is a little different. He's not going to be playing for Lincoln Riley, and he's not in the Big 12, and he won't have as much talent around him as South Carolina. But the Gamecocks last year, four times last year, we may forget this because, uh, you know, you're looking forward to this year in Spencer Rattler. Four times last year, South Carolina didn't even score in the first half on offense. In a third of their games last year, they got shut out in the first half. It was the third worst in the country, their first half offense. 
Only worse was New Mexico and Temple for first-half offense last year. That's where South Carolina was offensively. And by the way, New Mexico and Temple won a combined six games. South Carolina won seven in the SEC. So it was really impressive what South Carolina did, uh, going still just 7-6 and six with how bad the quarterback play and the offense was a year ago. Now, along with Spencer Rattler, right, the leading rusher coming back, running back uh, from last year, has like 250 yards. So, uh, you know, there's, there's optimism in the running back room, but maybe still some things need to be proven. Offensive line. I think the offensive line will be better. They're in a new system last year. Now, second year in this offensive system, and you're bringing back almost the entire offensive line. That's good. That's important for Spencer Rattler. So the offensive line should be better this year. Uh, quarterback should be a lot better than last year. The offense, therefore, you would like to think should be better. However, my concern for South Carolina is that I wonder if the defense will be as good. The concern for South Carolina's defense is that, you know, last year the secondary was really good. I think the secondary will be the strength again this year. Uh, the front seven will be the bigger concern on defense if they could get after the uh, quarterback and also stop the run. A couple of areas they struggled last year. They were bottom three in the SEC last year in those two categories. I don't know how much better they'll be this year. They certainly would probably have to be. But the other big thing, too, for the defense, the, the, the reason why I would be concerned about the defense is that they led the SEC in uh, takeaways last year defensively. And that's something, if you listen to the show, you know I talk about this all the time. The Chicago Bears went through it with Khalil Mack and that great defense a couple years ago. Turnovers, you cannot rely on. Turnovers are such an inconsistent stat. Turnovers, the analytical crowd will tell you turnovers are not a product of good defense. It's more a product of good luck. And so when you get a lot of takeaways one year, you're not going to get them the next. Vice versa. If you turn the ball over a lot on offense one year, you're not going to turn it over as much the next. Fumbles are a 50-50 proposition. So if a team recovers more than half of the fumbles, that's considered good luck. Because regardless of you may fumble and have five teammates around you, the analytical crowd will tell you, no, every time you fumble, you have a shot to get the ball. It's a 50-50 thing. So if you recover more than half of your fumbles, that's considered good luck. You're not going to have that same luck year after year after year. It's hard for a defense to rely on turnovers. South Carolina led the conference in turnovers. So my point in all this being, Clemson, I think, will be very similar to last year. Defense is going to be really good, and we're just going to have to wait and see if the quarterback can be good enough. South Carolina, I think they're kind of going to be the opposite of last year. Last year, the offense was awful, and the defense was really good. I'm not telling you the defense is going to be awful this year, but I think the defense will take a step back, and the offense will take a step forward for South Carolina. And last year, it was a case of first to 24 would win. This year, it may be slightly different. Again, I don't think the defense is suddenly going to be terrible this year. I don't think it'll be as tough as it was a year ago. I don't know if they'll lead the SEC in takeaways again. That's a huge um, balancing statistic. I mean, when you get that many takeaways, your offense is so bad, but you get some short fields, you keep the other team from scoring, you get those takeaways, uh, get fewer possessions for the other team. That's that's a huge um, number that can balance out things on the field. I don't know if you can rely on that this year. But I'll also say offensively, I would hope they can score more in the first half, get more production from the quarterback position with Spencer Rattler. So for Clemson, I view them as being very similar to last year, the big question, quarterback, and then, of course, the coordinators. South Carolina, I think Spencer Rattler's a big upgrade. I think the offensive line will be better. I think the offense overall will be better. The defense, however, may not be quite as good as last year. So South Carolina could have a little bit of an opposite identity as they did a year ago, where Clemson will be very much the same. Uh, Clemson introduced their new uh, baseball coach yesterday, he had uh, his press conference. I thought he did well. Eric Backich was introduced as new coach of Clemson baseball. Here's a couple of things that he had to say 
um, first talking about what brought him to Clemson. In 126 years of, of Clemson baseball history, we, we are yet to win a national championship. And I don't see any reason why we can't have that lofty goal year in and year out. And that's what we'll be striving for. That's how we'll be recruiting, and that's how we'll be developing. I like that. That's the goal. Look, he got Michigan to the national championship game in 2019, couldn't beat Vanderbilt, but just getting there was pretty impressive. The only time Michigan had made it to the national title, first time for a Big Ten team since the 60s, first time for any team up north since the mid-70s. It was pretty impressive, that run a few years ago. And I talked about this when he was hired earlier this week, but if you want to win championships in college baseball, this is kind of the area you have to come to. That's why he's here at Clemson, as he said yesterday at his press conference. That's the goal. We want to win national championships. Here was the other clip from Backage yesterday talking about the rivalry with South Carolina. Another reason to come to Clemson is for the Clemson-South Carolina rivalry. We will take this rivalry very seriously and respect it every single day by how we prepare and train. Regardless of championships or rivalries, rivalries will narrow our sights down to the number one. One day, one game, one inning, one pitch, one rep at a time. Package yesterday. I thought he did a good job at that press conference being introduced as new head coach at Clemson. I think that's what you want to hear about that rivalry with South Carolina. When we come back, which team in college football could kind of be like last year's Bengals of the NFL? I'll explain next. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Who could be the surprise team of college football this year? The Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Last segment played some of the clips from Eric Backage, new coach of Clemson Baseball, getting introduced yesterday. Thought he did a good job. Thought he touched on all the uh, the buzzwords. Right? Talk about winning a national championship. That's good. That gets the folks excited. Talk about the importance of that South Carolina rivalry. That's good. Playing to the audience. Very good. I thought he did a good job yesterday. We'll see how he does as the actual head coach of Clemson. The one thing I will say is he was clearly just reading off the paper. Now, I get it. But, I don't know, I think introductory press conference, I think we need a little better than just simply reading a, like reading a long statement off a paper. It's like when you used to give a presentation, uh, the people in class that would just read off the PowerPoint slides, they'd read the whole slide. The slide would just be all the text they want to say. It's like their cue card. And there's just a lot of words on the screen. They just stand there and read the whole thing. It's like, ah, it's not the best presentation. Uh, you want to ad-lib a little bit, have it memorized, just have those buzzwords written down that jog the memory. Anyways, I thought he did a good job, though. That's like uh, at a wedding, right? If somebody's making a speech at a wedding, never be the guy to read or a gal to read from a piece of paper. I, I Less like, especially at the reception, if you're giving a toast or something, don't pull out a little note card. Just go from the hip. Just go. Just go. Well, hold on now. Wait a minute. I may have to contradict myself on this Uh-oh. now. I think that's the one situation because I think where people get themselves in trouble is they try to do that thing and then they just drag on mm, okay. and they kind of confuse themselves and don't know where they're going to go next. There's no structure to it. And now they're just jib jabbing up there about their lifelong friend for 10 minutes. 
like, all right, like, where are we going with all have this? Have an idea. Have an idea of mm-hmm. where you want to go. But I, I don't know, Luke. I just lose some respect for people when they hop up there and they say, wait one second. And they just pull <laughs> out a little paper. And they're like, John was my best friend since we were seven. It's like, just go. Yeah. Just go. Let it rip, best man. Let it rip. There's a happy medium. Yeah. Like I said, jot down instead, jot down some keywords <laughs> in order of like the stories you want to tell. And then you have your structure. Okay, I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit this. Not verbatim, word for word, but you know this is what I'm going to do. Which I'll be honest, that's what I do a lot of times with uh, the the segments, the topics of this show, so that I keep it all in, straight in my head. This is what I want to make sure I touch on, and this is the order I want to do it in. And I'll put a little uh, bullet points. All right, do t- talk about this, then this, then this, and let's go put it in this order to keep everything organized. Because otherwise, I'll uh, everything will go crazy. I'll be all over the place, which sometimes I am. I'm a scatterbrained to begin with. i got so many thoughts going on in my head that I want to make sure I get to. So, yeah, I think there's a happy medium. I do agree with you because it is, like, supposed to be personal and emotional a wedding. It does seem a little off if you're just reading a, a script, essentially. But I think people are so worried. I've never had any – I've done weddings before as the officiant. I've never had to do, like, a speech at a wedding. I think people are so worried they want to make sure they nail it, that they type it all out, probably read it over a bunch of times, and then, you know, i got to stick to this script. I don't know. You and I might be different where we're like, it's a, I, there's a little bit more comfortability, I guess. Like when you get up there and I feel like you're at a party or something, like I gave a toast at a, at a 70th birthday party. I saw, I was the first person to speak, stood up on the mic, didn't have anything planned. Didn't know I was going to speak kind of murdered. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Like did pretty well. So, but there is, you're right. Like have an idea, have some key words, maybe a story or two that you have in your mind, but don't pull out the big paper and unfold it and then start reading line for line. Like you said in the, like in college, in the presentations, oh, the just go, just go. Yeah. You know, like give us a little synopsis of the slide. Don't read right off of it. You wrote that. I understand. You're like uh, George Costanza when he uh, worked at that company. He didn't know if he was hired or not at a certain company. <laughs> So he just shows up to work there, starts working there all week, and then they throw a birthday party, and he's the one that gives the speech for the the birthday toast for his coworker, who he has no <laughs> idea who these people are. That's like you. You're at a 70 birthday party. Trent crashed somebody's 70th birthday party. <laughs> he's the one standing up giving the toast. I mean, the microphone was there, Luke. <laughs> Come on. Somebody had to say some words. Why not? Uh, so, yeah, anyways, happy medium. But people are so afraid of public speaking that I, I guess the number one fear. The old joke, right? You'd rather be in the casket than be the one giving the eulogy at the funeral. People are more afraid of public speaking than dying. Number one fear. So I get it. But in the case of Backage, like, you want to get up there, you want to really inspire. And he was just sitting there, like, literally just looking, head down, reading off a paper. I don't know. I thought he did a good job, though. I thought what he said was good. Anyways. Which team could be the surprise in college football? You know, yesterday we talked about in the NFL, who could be this year's version of the Cincinnati Bengals? Well, I was thinking about the same thing this morning for college football. Now, college football, again, it's so predictable that it would be hard to think of a surprise team going all the way to the championship. But Cincinnati, the criteria being Cincinnati at the NFL level, I know apples and oranges, but the the Bengals did not make the playoffs the year prior. So I thought for college football, what about teams that have never made the playoffs? What team that has never made the playoff, because there's plenty of them, could actually not only make the playoff this year for the first time, but make a run to the national title game? Because last year, when you look at college football last year, we got close. Michigan had never made the playoff. They made it last year. Cincinnati never made the playoff. They were in the playoff last year. But as close as we got, we were still very far away because both teams were blown out in their semifinal games. 
and we clearly, right, we got the two better teams, Georgia, Alabama, in the national championship game. So I think this year we may get some surprises. Some teams make the playoff for the first time, but can they actually get to the national championship? Can they actually win the national championship? I'm not so sure. I think the top candidates are teams that we've been discussing throughout this offseason, the same teams that we uh, keep trying to pump the tires of. I would say Texas A&M. I'm not as high on Texas A&M as most people, but they did almost make the playoff two years ago, beat Alabama last year. That's a good stepping stone. And I know they had the best recruiting class this year, but I'm more concerned about the last couple years, and they have an average top 10 ranking last four years. So there's a lot of talent on this roster. Can Jimbo Fisher finally put it all together to the point where they can make the playoff? The SEC, right, they had two playoff teams last year. Could A&M be one of those two if they get another two again this year? USC would be another popular pick because Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, all the talent out there, and the Pac-12 is wide open. I'm big on Utah, so I would say Utah is another one. Uh, Utah was in the Rose Bowl last year. That was good exposure for them in the sense that you probably don't pay a lot of attention to Pac-12 football or Utah. Then you watch them in the Rose Bowl and thought, like, wow, actually, maybe this program's pretty good. And now they bring back that uh, a lot of those pieces from that team. They bring back that offense. And the coach and the coaching staff and the Pac-12, again, wide open. Utah be another. And then the fourth one I would give you would be a Texas. If, and I think this is a big if, but if Quinn Ewers is as advertised, they have the best running back in the country already. Sarkeesian knows offense. This offense could be very exciting if the quarterback is there. But that's a big if. We just we haven't seen him. I don't know. He's a big unknown. And now he's already in his second program here in college. He left high school early, went to Ohio State just to get paid. Now he's at Texas. I don't know. I have no idea what to expect. But a lot of people are very high on Texas. Vegas is high on Texas. And mostly, I would imagine, because of the new quarterback they brought in, Quinn Ewers. So if he is as good as advertised, Texas could be very intriguing in a wide-open Big 12. So those are the four teams for me that I would give an actual chance to. A&M, USC, Utah, Texas, that they've never made the playoff before. Those are the four I'd give a chance that not only do they make the playoff for the first time this year, but they actually get to a national title game. Now, Texas A&M comes from the SEC, so I'd probably give them the best chance because, as we've seen, the SEC has always fared the best as just an overall conference in the playoff. Oklahoma would win, would win the Big 12, then they get embarrassed. Right? Notre Dame would be the top independent team, embarrassed. Cincinnati would come from the group of five, they get embarrassed in the playoffs. Uh you know, Washington out of the Pac-12 got embarrassed. Michigan State out of the Big Ten, embarrassed. But the SEC always holds their own. So I guess maybe Texas A&M would have the best chance come playoff time. They'd be the most prepared coming out of the SEC. And then USC's got a lot of firepower, so maybe they'd be number two, Utah three. And then Texas still, to me, is such a wild card. I don't think Texas will be in playoff contention this year. I don't think they'll be as good as most people expect. I put Texas this year, I don't know, eight, nine wins maybe. I don't think they win the Big 12. I'm not as high on that. We hear about Texas every year, right? Is Texas back? And people are just waiting for a reason to believe this is going to be the year. This year will be different. Texas is going to be much better. you got to show me something before I start believing in you. So while I'll acknowledge Texas could be one of those teams, I also don't give them a huge opportunity, a huge chance to actually pull it off. Four teams I would say could be, if you want to call them, you know, this year's Cincinnati Bengals of college football, a team that, forget missing the playoffs last year, they have always missed the playoff, but this year can make a run to the championship. Texas A&M, USC, Utah, Texas, in that order, I would say. Realistically, uh, Texas A&M may be the only team that has a real shot at doing it, maybe USC as well. But like last year, right, Michigan-Cincinnati got to the playoff for the first time. Could have happened last year? Yeah, both teams got blown out. They were overwhelmed by their playoff opponent. And uh, something similar probably happened this year to any of those two, any of those teams getting there for the first time. 
When we come back, we do it around this time each and every day. Time for Trent's Takes. It's the Mar Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Ben Lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, don't forget another blood drive's going on. A Red Cross blood drive at Cruz Subaru. Coming up Wednesday, June 29th, so less than two weeks from now, but we're uh, letting you know early. All donors will receive a $35 gift card for service, parts, accessories at Cruz Subaru. So keep that in mind. June 29th over at Cruz Subaru in North Charleston, the Red Cross blood drive. Uh, visit uh, redcrossblood.org. Use sponsor code CRUISE. To schedule your appointment today. Their latest blood drive over there through Subaru in uh, about 10 days. Hey, we do it around this time each and every day. We find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's okay. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, what an incredible, incredible NBA final series that we just had. To all the NBA haters out there in the world, you can't say, you know, too much about this series. I mean, really, the physicality was there, Luke. The defense was very, very good especially last night. I mean, there were some foul calls, but there wasn't a ton. They were really letting them play last night. One of my favorite series in quite some time, you know, to be perfectly honest, Boston, the newcomers versus the Warriors. It seems like the old heads now, which they used to not be the old heads, but now they're the old heads still getting it done. Absolutely incredible. And I will point out, point out over the last three games, just so happened to be eight and one in my props. Went 3-0 and last night, no big deal. But it was so cool, man, to see this Warriors team who I feel like I've been watching my entire life, basically growing up and seeing this dynasty happen. Seeing Steph Curry, who started incredibly slow in that game at the start, turn it on because he knew. I mean, gosh, Luke, in the third quarter, he hit a three, and I think they went up uh, 12, if I'm not mistaken, and he was already pointing yeah. to his ring finger. That was savage. And then he hit the three with about three minutes left in the ball game to put him up double digits and did the, uh, you know, sleepy sign like he did to the Mavs in game two the guy's an absolute G I really am sick of the conversations about you know where is he on the hierarchy of the greatest players of all time he's in those conversations now you talk about the Magics you talk about Bird Jordan LeBron you add Steph Curry in that conversation and personally he's been in that conversation for me Luke I've always had him within my you know pantheon of greatest NBA players there is no doubt in my mind that he has surpassed anybody else on that point card list and is now officially an NBA Finals MVP. He didn't need that to cement his legacy, like you said, Luke. I know Mr. Artest said otherwise, but uh, I personally think that he was already one of the greatest of all time. It was also awesome to see Clay Thompson. I, I know he didn't have the greatest series. He's definitely not the same. I think I saw something 941 days away from basketball, you, you know, which is absolutely crazy. He had an Achilles tear, which was a full tear, by the way, and a full ACL tear with an MCL, I believe, in there as well. And the guy comes back, you know, he hits, uh, hits some good shots, especially in game five. He absolutely went nuclear. Love seeing game six clay come out. And Draymond last night, Draymond stepping up in the moment. I mean, he hit a couple threes that were great. He had some great passes. I think he 
finished with a double-double, if I'm not mistaken. That's what you need from a guy like Draymond and Steve Kerr. I mean, nine championships, like you mentioned now. This is one of the greatest dynasties the NBA has ever seen. You have to put them up there with the Bulls, with the Spurs, even though, like you said, that they were kind of, you know, panned out a little bit. The Lakers, the Warriors are right there in that conversation. And Steph Curry, in my opinion, probably the greatest point guard to ever do it uh, when it's all said and done, especially if he wins one more. I mean, imagine if this team stays together, if they're able to pay Andrew Wiggins, pay Jordan Poole, which we saw on their Instagram story last night. They were not only celebrating the NBA championship, but they were both talking about how they're going to get a bag. Young fellas definitely going to get that bag after the series that both of them had. Jordan Poole, by the way, never a doubt when it came to the props. Always take Jordan Poole's over, especially in this final series. He only let me down one time, Luke, one time. And Al Horford, too. Got to give Horford a shout-out. He never let me down this entire series. But you and I said it, Warriors in six, ended in the perfect way. And now, Luke, we're just waiting for football season. I know we got baseball, but football season's around the corner. What an amazing NBA final series. I'm glad that I was a part of it with you and everybody. It's just been so fun to watch, Luke. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's interesting. It went six games. There was a lot of intrigue. The Warriors won the final, you know, three, and they were kind of dominant. The games, we never had really that end-of-the-game moment, uh, like some sort of game winner coming down the home stretch. But I still found the games to be intriguing, if, even if the final score was always double digits. We haven't had a game seven, though, you know, in the NBA Finals in seven years. So we were missing some of those late game dramatics or like a seventh game, but I still, I'm with you. I thought it was a very intriguing NBA Finals. It's fun to watch Steph Curry when he's on. Uh, It was an intriguing matchup of the young Celtics against the dynastic uh, Warriors as they're a little bit older. I enjoyed the NBA Finals. I enjoyed the NBA playoffs. Uh, And, uh, you know, I am happy for Steph Curry to get that Finals MVP and for the Warriors to get another championship. As I said earlier this week, usually we hate these teams that always win. I don't know. For some reason, Golden State comes off very likable. So I got no problem with them being this year's uh, NBA champions. Yeah, I mean, they're likable guys. But it's so funny, Luke. This morning, immediately on, you know, get up and first take, well, can the Warriors do it again next year? You know, that, that was the big conversation. It's like, let's celebrate what this team just did from in 2019 having the worst record in the NBA to winning an NBA championship about two and a half, three years later. Absolutely unbelievable. A tip of the cap. Tip of the cap to the Golden State Warriors. For sure. Let's stop. If if they win another one, there's a bigger conversation to go ahead, and I hope they do because if they keep that, do you think they'll be able to keep that team around, the Pools and the Andrew Wiggins, some of their role guys? But Warriors pay. That's what these owners do. They pay everybody. They paid Clay. They paid Draymond. They paid, uh, you know, Steph Curry, and I think Andrew Wiggins is about to get paid. Do you think they can keep this team together to potentially go on another run? Also, Kendra Perkins was talking about, oh, when the NBA is healthy uh, next year, it's going to be a lot different for the Warriors I really disagree I think this team could do it year in and year out if they're healthy I think it's not about the other teams being healthy it's about if the Warriors are healthy and Steph Curry being healthy yeah and you know when you talk about the health like the Nuggets were banged up this year the Lakers and LeBron and the Clippers I would say LeBron at this point right I don't know he's not the same LeBron the Clippers and the Nuggets compare them to Golden State I mean the Warriors just have that winning Ability. I know Kawhi Leonard's won a lot in his career, but you know the Clippers have been a bit of a disaster with him leading them. So it's not like uh, we're talking about a dynasty that's like this. Is what I'm trying to say: when the Warriors were down the last couple of years, they were injured, and you'd say, "Wait till they get healthy," because they know what it's like to win championships. Right? It's not the same idea with like the Nuggets. Like, wait till the Nuggets get healthy. Well, when they've been <laughs> healthy, they haven't won anything. When the Clippers have been healthy, they haven't won anything. So yeah, all these teams will be better, but it's not like you're waiting on this. Uh, 
incredible championship team to get healthy. The other thing for the Warriors, look, even like Looney, I think is due for a contract. He'll get some money. They do have, if Kaminga pans out, Wiseman pans out, and then you have Jordan Poole, those are three guys that are 22 and younger. So even though they have these (laughs) old, you know, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, they do have this young core of talent that if they can develop that next group, that can also carry them forward, surrounding them with like a Steph Curry, keeping some of the veterans and I just trust Golden State with the way they've built this team over the past decade that I imagine, yeah, they'll continue to be uh, at the top of the, the league here for the next couple of years. Yeah, never doubt the heart of a champion. Been saying it all week, saying it about the Lightning and saying it about the Warriors. Worked out for the Warriors. We'll say the same for the Lightning. They'll win in seven. Now, Luke, 2026 World Cup. Obviously, the World Cup's coming up in uh, Qatar. I believe that's how you say it. I'm not sure. I've heard some other pronunciation. Can you correct me on that if possible? No, that's how we'll say it. Okay, perfect. That's, that's what, what we're going with. with. That's what we'll go with then. But uh, 2026, Luke. Looks like the World Cup is coming back to America. Now, they announced the uh, potential host cities for the World Cup, and I'll give you a couple, and you give me which one you would like the World Cup to be at or think it's best suited for the World Cup because, personally, I can't really pinpoint a city here and think, oh, yeah, that's definitely where we could have a World Cup. Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, Philly, San Francisco, Seattle. Are there any are any of those? I would say Los Angeles probably would be the place, but I was kind of thinking either Miami could be good for soccer. I know they love the soccer down there. And Atlanta usually has, like, they're able to hold big events. I don't know. I want your take on this because I'll definitely try to. If the World Cup is here and America is playing in it and it's in America, I'll be, I'm there. There's no doubt about it. I'd love to be in that environment. And Atlanta has, I guess, done a really good job supporting Atlanta United FC. Yes. So I guess they have a good like soccer community around there, uh, which I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, I, my first thought was Miami. And then, I, yeah, I mean, L.A. is out. You could put anything in L.A. And, right. and you'll be fine. There's so many people. It's so big. So many uh, different spaces out there. But my first thought was Miami. Those would probably be the two, Miami and L.A. And then, as you said, like Atlanta could be a sneaky one with uh, how good of a soccer culture they've built recently. It's not as big of an area as in L.A., but uh, that could be another good option as well. But my first thought would probably be Miami. Yeah, no doubt. And then, like, Toronto is in there as well. They could potentially do it. Uh, I don't think Philly would be good. New York, I mean, they would have it at the Meadowlands. I don't yeah. think that would work, you know, especially having everybody on that. If everybody's staying in Manhattan, that's going to be a big problem. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But I'm very excited, Luke, because the, I think the World Cup – always it's like the olympics for me it's always been on my bucket list of things like my main like goal on my bucket list is to see a 100 meter final at the olympics that is my goal in life i want to see it so bad i think i might be going to paris for the 2023 olympics so i really hope i'm able to get there but the world cup is up there too not that i'm a huge soccer fan i just when you watch the atmospheres and the vuvuzelas are going and there's smoke in the air it's like How is how is this environment being created just off an international soccer game? Like it's it's unbelievable. So if it's here, Luke, I think the Moral Midday Show will definitely have to do a couple shows from wherever it is, potentially Miami or Atlanta for a couple. Oh, that'd days. be great. Yeah, if they were close enough, uh, you could get to Miami or Atlanta. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. Uh, the only soccer I watch, Charleston Battery and the World <laughs> Cup. So yeah, I I do like the world. I'm not a big soccer guy. I do like the World Cup. And when we had the World Baseball Classic, which is not exactly the same. World Cup's a lot bigger than the World Baseball Classic. But similar idea, they held that in Miami when we had it here in the States at this point now. That was probably a decade, close to a decade ago. That was in Miami. And uh, it went okay. So I think the World Cup could, could uh, serve well in Miami as well um, in a few years. So I'll be, I'll be looking forward to it. That's, like I said, that's the only soccer I really pay attention to.
Yeah, I mean, I, if I'm up early in the morning, I'll you know my family are big Tottenham fans, so I'll see mm. if Tottenham game's on and uh, turn that on. But I don't know enough about the players to uh, really like truly get invested into it. I could spend time and like actually get it because it is a cool like thing. I it's probably a lot more cool live. That's what my brother's always oh, told sure, me. Like yeah. he he studied abroad for a while in Europe and went to a Barcelona game and went to all these other games. He said it's completely different than any other American sports atmosphere. So that's probably the only reason I really want to go to the World Cup because you got fans from all over the world mm-hmm. who are just so passionate just to see that would be probably one of the cooler things ever. Yeah, in fact, now that you, you say that, I, when I play my pickup basketball on Wednesday, <laughs> one of the guys there went to the World Cup about a decade ago. And yeah, he was he was telling me about it a few weeks back and he was raving about the experience and what it was like. Uh, soccer, that, that soccer culture and those environments and atmosphere is... In other countries, it's off the charts. Yeah. So uh, that, that certainly would be a cool experience. Yeah, my mother went to the uh, the um, Olympics in Greece uh, when uh-huh. it was in Athens in 2004, like, you know, with all the history of the Olympics being yeah, in right. Greece. Like she said, it was unlike anything she's ever been to. I'm sure. You know, like the Olympics and the World Cup, too, are some of the most watched events um, for sports, and obviously because they bring in other countries, but, like, even in this country, because there's just something about it when you have all the countries come together. It's a little bit different. Obviously, it's just bigger. It's the whole world compared to, like, the NBA. So, like, the Olympics, even in this country, the Olympics do big numbers um, historically. This past Olympics, not so much. But historically, uh, the Olympics uh, do big numbers here in the States. Even the World Cup's popular uh, because, yeah, when you have all the different countries and you're battling for, like, world supremacy in that sport, uh, you know, that's always a big thrill, big deal. I had a buddy in high school back in the day that used to wake up before school to watch the Italian soccer games. And mm. I, said, I said, no, thanks. What are you doing? I'd rather get my sleep. True it, day. Yeah, yeah, he was. <laughs> uh, you're not going to get me up at like 5 a.m. to be watching Italian soccer. Get out of here. But the World Cup, that's when I become a big Italian soccer fan. Let me tell you, love the World Cup. Oh, so you're, do you go you go Italy first? No, I, I can't. <laughs> I don't know. I can't do that. I kind of do, if I'm being honest. But, of course, They're I root better. for <laughs> yeah, they are. So that's why I'm a front runner. Whichever whichever team's better, and it's usually Italy. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a fun time. In fact, growing up in an area, you know, around here, there's not a lot of Italians around here, and that's fine. <laughs> but growing up in an area where it's heavy Italian, oh man, I remember when Italy won the World Cup. Going back, I don't know, almost 20 years at this point, it was crazy. Like the parades and people all had the Italian flags. You go to a local bakery, and while the games were going on, everybody was into it. It was a really cool environment. It was the first time that where I grew up. Like, people were really into soccer because yeah. Italy was about to win the World Cup. And uh, usually didn't uh, have that. But uh, it was the pride uh, of the people because there's so many Italians up there in the Northeast that uh, they all suddenly everyone was a soccer fan. They all came out of the woodwork. Uh, but, yeah, that was cool. So, I, again, you know, I like the World Cup because of um, that pride and passion it brings for people for their countries um, or just uh, where their ancestors came from, too. Yeah, I mean, that's where, like, every four years, everybody in America suddenly becomes soccer fans. You know, we're cheating, yeah. che- uh, chanting, I believe, that we can win, you know, yeah, in right. bars across America while we're getting blown out by Honduras. I mean, <laughs> just, it's just what happens, folks. Can't change anything. But how about this? You just go watch the women. Our, our women will dominate. Yeah. Like, we can get behind them, but... Our men's team, I mean, let's be honest, you, you know, we're in a tough group, too. I mean, we got England and Wales in there. That's difficult going into the World Cup this year. And this year it's going to be uh, during football season, right? It's in the fall? Middle of football season. Yeah, that's going to be a little tough. Be, well, games are going to be in the mornings, so right. no, that's pretty good. You can catch a couple games every so often. Yeah. A little football doubleheader, right? The, the real football. And but then I, you watch the American football, too. We got it. We tied with El Salvador, though, you know, on a muddy field in the middle of nowhere. And it was it was a difficult performance by our boys. But we need to step up. Step yeah. up when it matters. Christian Pulisic needs to get going, Luke Morrow. 
Apparently, he needs more fans out there. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll get him yeah, going. That's right. Yeah, calling out the hot soccer fans. Hey, we'll wrap up uh, hour two when we come back. It's more midday show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Number two of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We've been talking this week about bad NFL teams trying to get better. You know, we were talking about the Jets the other day. I'm not so sure about this Zach Wilson already in his second year. I think the Jets have had a really good offseason. I don't know if they have the quarterback. But I'm starting to come around on Zach Wilson because I saw this from yesterday. Uh, The Yankees uh, were at home playing the Tampa Bay Rays. Zach Wilson was in attendance with uh, apparently his girlfriend, had front row seats, of course, right behind home plate. They were doing the wave at Yankee Stadium. And a lot of uh, uh, publicity, a lot lot has been made about Zach Wilson really not having the wave, not getting involved in the wave. And for that, I've become a bigger Zach Wilson fan. In fact, I'm watching the video now, the people sitting next to him. People in front row seats behind home plate are busy doing the wave at a baseball game. Zach Wilson does not stand up, and I assume his girlfriend, the woman with him, just grabs his arm and lifts up one of his arms for him as they're both seated. I'm with Zach Wilson. I've said this for years. Cut out the silly wave at baseball stadiums, especially when it's a close game. This was the Yankees against the Rays. As big of a game as you're going to get in the division. The Yankees end up winning on a walk-off. It's a close game. What are we doing the wave for, especially when you're dropping hundreds of dollars to sit in those front-row seats behind home? Stop at the silly wave. Cut it out from baseball games. They were doing it at the concert I was at a few weeks ago. Everyone's doing the wave. Ah, so tacky. Get the wave out. I'm with Zach Wilson. And for that, eh, maybe the Jets will be better this year because of uh, Zach Wilson's hate of the wave. Hour three next. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll catch up with current Orlando Magic Jonathan Isaac in about 30 minutes to talk about the NBA Finals. And in a few moments, talk about what happened with Jason Tatum. And also Steph Curry getting that much-needed NBA Finals MVP. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however... You listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just 
click on our show page, find them there. While there, you can also leave a comment for the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Get to us on Twitter, at Morrow Middays. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Or give us a call, 843-721-9500 to join the conversation. I played uh, basketball again last night, last two nights. Feel pretty good today, but let me tell you, I lead the league in jammed fingers. Jammed fingers? Oh, my goodness. I don't know why I keep doing it. What happened? Like, what, what do you think causes the uh, jamming of your uh, fingers, kind of, Luke? I don't know. That's a good question. So, Wednesday night, I was going for a rebound. I reached out my left hand. I was battling for a rebound with somebody else. I think they tipped it first, and then so then that, you know, they tipped uh, it, and both of our hands were right there. So, yeah, I think he tipped it into right into my finger. It's my um, uh, middle finger on my left hand, which I find now that it hurts, it, you know, it's still like a little sore or whatever, jammed finger. I'm sensitive. Uh, I find that I use my middle finger on my left hand like more often than my index finger. Like even just putting on the blinker or whatever, I, you know, your middle finger's a little bit longer, so when I have to reach for something, I find, because I'm a righty, on my left hand I use my middle finger more. But now whenever I'm using it to push something, ah, it hurts. And then last night, I don't know, I just fumbled the pass, which I, I, I tend to do. I'm a little clumsy, I guess. <laughs> and it's my index finger on my right hand, and I'm a righty. Oh, jeez. So this one hurts today. And, like, you know, they're swollen, they're fat, especially around the knuckles. I'm I'm telling you, no lie. Every time we go play, because uh, I can't get out there every week. I have had other things going on. Uh, hopefully this summer I'll be able to play more. But usually we, you know, I try to play every Wednesday. Whenever I play, I jam a finger. It is brutal. I dislocated my pinky last year. That's never going to be a hundred percent. So I'm already dealing with that. Now I got these jam fingers on both hands. It's brutal. I jammed one really bad a couple weeks ago. I took my eye off the basketball. Mm. And uh, did you play wide receiver or just, like, DB? Wide receiver. Yeah, wide receiver. that was mainly a wide receiver. You were a wide receiver? receiver? Yeah. So maybe you've had this oh. during your career, but, you know, like, you take your eyes off, in this case, the basketball, because I had a lane towards the, the hoop. I already started to move. And when you take your eyes away from either the football or basketball, sometimes you may think it's closer to you than it is, mm-hmm. so you close your hands before the ball oh, actually yeah. gets there. Oh, yeah. That's what I did, and so the basketball came, and right, my fingers were just point. I closed my hands thinking the ball was already on me, and then it just came and just smacked right into my fingers. That one was so painful. Oh, yeah. And then the ball went out of bounds, and I, you know, so I turned it over as well and hurt myself. I don't know what it is. I think I just maybe I'm a little clumsy. I'm not catching the balls clean. I jam a finger on a rebound, on a pass, whatever. Taking a shot, somebody goes to block your shot. I jam a finger every week. It's the worst. First time I ever uh, caught a pass from Sam Hartman. We were uh, training in the offseason. He came down from North Carolina, and I ran a five-yard hitch route. And, by the way, I'd never been with a Division One quarterback before <laughs> throwing me the football. Not only did he jam my finger, oh. it went right through my hands. My middle finger bent back and hit me square in the nose. <laughs> square in the nose. Oh, I geez. was like, oh, great. I'm supposed to be this guy's number one. And uh, this is the first, first thing he's ever seen from me is uh, he's jamming my finger and hitting me right in the nose with a ball. He says, you know what, next time maybe I'm going to look to the other side. He said, I said, take some heat off now. <laughs> what are you doing? I can only imagine. I heard um, Sterling Sharp, former Gamecock, talk about catching. He was talking about catching passes from Brett Favre. I can only imagine. Look, I, I'm no wide receiver. I don't have great hands. I can only imagine what it's like catching uh, those bullet passes from somebody like Favre, firing them in there on you. Professionals in general, it's just like yeah. a, it's, it's such a different thing like even when you're just tossing the, obviously it's a different thing but we're tossing the ball around with your buddies or something and then like we threw with will greer one time who's yeah. now on the dallas cowboys i mean my hands were bleeding after after you catch ball like 10 balls from those oh, guys sure. crazy. that's why the the talent level compared to everything else is just 
so different. It's oh, unbelievable. Course. Yeah. And people are sitting at home thinking, like, I can do that. <laughs> Steph Curry? Yeah, I can make all those threes. He's not that impressive, which I'll use as a segue into last night because Steph Curry is never appreciated. And I've thought about this. I don't know. Maybe it's because he doesn't look like – I've always said this. He is so relatable, but maybe to his detriment. You watch LeBron James, you wish you could be like that. But you know, like, I'm not that athletic. You watch Michael Jordan, you wish you could jump like that, dunk from the foul line. But you know, like, no, I, I can't do that. Even Will Ferrell in the office, right, couldn't actually jump from the foul line. Steph Curry, you watch him, and he's not that big. Well, he's bigger than you think, but out on the floor he doesn't look that big. I think he's like 6'3", right? If you stand next to him, he's, you're going to be surprised how big he actually is, and he's a little bit broader now. But out in the court, he looks pretty small. He's chucking up threes. You think, like, yeah, I could do that. I think Steph Curry has always been underappreciated, whether it was the lack of recruiting, recruitment out of high school, where Seth Greenberg didn't even want him to walk on to his father's alma mater, where he wanted, where Curry wanted, he'd rather be a walk on there than, you know, a scholarship player like a Davidson. Virginia Tech said, no, nope, not interested. Then he went seventh in the draft, which seems good, but other guards like Johnny Flynn were taken ahead of him. Then he wins an MVP in the NBA, and still his peers, the Players Association, that was the offseason they came up with their own award. Because they didn't like the idea of Curry winning the MVP, no way. Then he wins a bunch of finals, but, yeah, he had Kevin Durant. Then Kevin Durant leaves, and everyone's saying, yeah, that's the end of the Warriors. They can't win without Kevin Durant. Heading into this year, the Warriors were not the favorites. In the NBA Finals, they were not the favorites. And when they fell down 2-1, to one, everybody already wrote them off. They then won the next three games. Curry has always been underappreciated, but now he's one of five to win multiple MVPs, a final MVP, a scoring title, and at least four NBA titles. One of five players to do that. The others are some of the all-time greats. Jordan, LeBron, Wilt, Jabbar. Of those four, only Jordan's the only other one to have a winning record in the finals, along with Curry as well. So you can make a case Jordan and Curry have the most impressive resumes of stars over the years in the NBA. And as I said earlier, what's also impressive is that Curry has done this during the LeBron era. Nobody was winning other than Jordan when Jordan was the best player in the league. When LeBron has been the best player, maybe not now, but even you know back when the Warriors were winning those championships, right? when this has been LeBron's quote-unquote league, yeah, that's when Curry's been winning. Here was uh, Charles Barkley. I'm actually surprised by this. There's a lot of these old-school guys who refuse to give flowers to the new players compared to their era. Here was Barkley on ESPN's Get Up This Morning saying he thinks Curry now has passed everybody of his size at that position. This is going to be painful for me to say I think he passes Isaiah Thomas as the greatest small guard ever. Mm. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, when, I mean, four championships, because Isaiah Thomas to me is the greatest little point guard ever. So I think for me, this pushes him past Isaiah Thomas as the greatest point guard, small point guard ever. I mean, Magic's in a different category, but as, as far as a pure point guard, this, to me, puts A.L. Thomas. I think Barkley believes Curry is now ahead of Isaiah Thomas. It's, uh, you know, it, Isaiah Thomas, so it's always tricky to compare eras because today's NBA is so different. Isaiah Thomas averaged a fourth of a three-pointer made per game in his career, not even a half of a three. He averaged .4 threes made for his career. You know, it's just so different. They didn't shoot threes back then. Curry is so unique, so it's hard to compare him to other guys. Thomas was also, Isaiah was more of a true point guard. I mean, he could score, no doubt, but he also averaged almost 10 assists for his career. He was a distributor. Nowadays, the point guards, I was having this conversation with a bunch of my buddies 
uh, well, when I went on uh, when I went out of town with them a few weeks about a month ago. We were sitting around having this conversation. Like, how many true point guards are left in the league? There's not many. You know, back in the day, point guards would look to set up other guys before they look to score. Now, what a quote-unquote point guard is, I mean, LeBron is like a point guard, right? Whoever brings the ball up before. You want your best player with the ball in their hands at all times. Before, it was to set up the offense. Now, it is the offense, the point guard bringing the ball up. So, it's always hard to compare eras. Isaiah Thomas would be the guy to debate about. And Curry has had, like, a bigger impact, and he's the all-time best shooter, so he's better at his top skill than maybe Isaiah was. But Isaiah also wasn't very well-liked. I don't know what Barkley's relationship is with Isaiah Thomas. A lot of guys don't like Isaiah, so maybe you would have no problem saying Curry's better. Isaiah did make the All-Star team every season of his career until his final year when you know injuries made him ret- uh, had him retire at a young age. Curry, I don't know. I, I guess Curry is better, uh, has had a better career than Isaiah, but um, I do think it's still a pretty fascinating debate between those two. Isaiah had quite the career. Magic is in a whole other world. Again, it's hard to compare different eras. No three-pointers back then. Magic was very unique in his own right. He helped uh, evo- revolutionize, revolutionize the game with the tall guards. And he was called Magic for a reason. He was a magician out there, what he could do with the basketball. Great distributor, could score it as well, could rebound. He did everything, could play center when he needed to. Didn't have to shoot threes, wasn't a great shooter. Um, so it's just hard to compare the two. It's almost apples and oranges in that case. But obviously with Curry, now you get the finals MVP. You get that fourth championship doing it without Durant. I think this is the best one yet. Uh, It's remarkable. There's not much more you could say to try to criticize Steph Curry and his career. On the flip side, then there's Jason Tatum for the Celtics. Now you can always reach out to the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment there. Dale had asked this earlier, and I'll get to it now. He said, do you think Jason Tatum will become the consistent, reliable superstar the Celtics need, or is this just the level of player he is? Good question. Well, look, he's 24, right? So we probably should hope he will get better from here, that this isn't the ceiling. It was his first NBA Finals. I've been hard on Tatum. I think I've been proven to be accurate, though, at this point. And my whole point is everyone's talking about him as a superstar. He's not a superstar. Can he become a superstar? Yeah, maybe. But I've always pushed back on this idea that people are calling him a superstar now. What has led you to believe that's the case? Can he be a superstar? Yeah, he could. Sure, he could get better. He could improve. Maybe he'll be more prepared the next time he's in the finals, if he is. I don't know. But I can tell you right now, he's not some sort of superstar. And in the finals, he didn't even play like a star. He played like a role player. He was brutal again last night. The last team to win the NBA Finals without a star was the Pistons 18 years ago. That's what the Celtics had to try to do this series. In fact, I think it's kind of impressive that Boston even pushed it to six games. They did not have – their star was – I mean, Jalen Brown was probably the best player. Al Horford was probably the next best guy. He had uh, two big – he had a big game. He played really well last night. They won in game one because of him. He probably had a bigger impact this finals than Jason Tatum did. So for the Celtics, I mean, I almost tipped my cap to them. Like, credit. You guys got to six games without even having a star. No one's been able to win a championship without a star in 18 years. You got kind of close. They needed Tatum to be a star, and he certainly did not play like it. And last night was kind of embarrassing for the Celtics. They started 14-2. to They led 14-2 to in that game. And NBA is a game of runs. I had a buddy text. He was trailing my, my bets, so he was worried, right? Oh, no, what a bad start. I said, it's a game of runs. Don't worry. But I did, get, I did have a little fear that, hey, it isn't Boston. Season of the line. I thought, maybe, yeah, maybe the Celtics are going to come out just more fired up, ready to go. And they looked like it for the first half of the quarter. Started off 14-2, and then the rest of, uh, not the rest of the way, but for the next about two quarters, leading to the middle of the third, they were outscored 70-36 to 36 
in the biggest game of the year, 70-36, to 36, from the middle of the first quarter to the middle of the third quarter, essentially half a game. 70-36, to 36, that is embarrassing. On your home floor, season on the line. The Warriors went on a 21-0 run at one point. On your court, with your season on the line in the NBA Finals, the Celtics had 22 turnovers last night. That was brutal. I said yesterday they needed a hero. Jalen Brown tried to do his part. He played well. Horford, again, played really well last night, at least on the offensive end. Jason Tatum was lousy. Six for 18, shooting the basketball. 13 points last night when they needed him most. His points per game went down every series in the playoffs. All right, that's a, As things got more difficult, more important, he got worse. That's a concern. Like Aaron Judge, probably will be the MVP this year. Aaron Judge, once you get past the wild card, he's batting about 200 in the playoffs. That's the sign of a real – sure, you could hit 60 homers throughout the regular season playing in a bandbox. How do you do against the best pitching in the biggest games in the playoffs? Judge has not been great in the playoffs. Tatum, right? Sure, you could do great in the first round against the eighth seed. What do you do the next round? Then the next round. And in the NBA Finals, when they need you most, he was at his worst. A couple of numbers here. I know stats don't always work great over the radio, but uh, Tatum set a record for most turnovers in the playoffs with 100. Somebody photoshopped him on uh, Wilt Chamberlain holding up the piece of paper that said 100. That was pretty funny. He also uh, had the worst field goal percentage in the lane, the paint, the key, whatever you want to call it. Worst field goal percentage in that area in the playoffs in 25 years. He shot 30%. 30% on shots in the lane. He shot 31% on shots inside the arc. Worst ever for a player in the playoffs. He shot 36% overall in the finals. Fifth worst all time for a playoff series. That's how bad he was. Historically bad for the guy that was supposed to be your star. Not good. Here was uh, Kendrick Perkins this morning on Get Up. By the way, remember, Kendrick said the series was over when the Celtics were up 2-1. to one. I don't think he circled back to that opinion today. People usually don't. They usually forget the ridiculous things they say. Funny how that works. But here was Kendrick Perkins this morning talking about uh, uh, Jason Tatum and uh, what got him in trouble this series. Give him the what happened with Jason Tatum is what he did to Kevin Durant in the first round. He got pumped. Andrew Wiggins uh-huh. took, snatched his soul uh-huh. in this series. And you know what? It's part of the reason on why you should be careful who you train with in the offseason. Mm. Listen, uh-huh. both of those guys uh-huh. went through the same trainer Uh-oh. at one period of time. Andrew Wiggins uh-huh. was training with the same guy that trains uh-huh. Jason Tatum at this moment. So guess what happens? He knows his tendencies. Uh-oh. He's able to sit on his moves. He's able to block his shots. He's able to defend them well. This is what happens when you become so friendly that you want to work out with people in the offseason. But I will say this. The Celtics took for granted a golden opportunity last night. And I keep, they kept saying, oh, this is a learning experience. Well, I was on a young Oklahoma City Thunder team. Well, we thought that it was a learning experience. And guess what? Only one of those guys in Kevin Durant made it back to the finals with the mm-hmm. exception of me, but I didn't play a role. See, Jason Tatum last in this series, he had an opportunity to be a Kevin Durant at the age of 23 when he averaged 30 on 55% shooting, mm-hmm. or he had the opportunity to be who he was, a James Harden, when he got to the finals with the Oklahoma City Thunder, mm-hmm. a guy that completely vanished and completely Fell and shied away from the moment. Kendrick Perkins this morning. Yeah, I think he's pretty spot on. It's an interesting point about sharing the same trainer in the offseason. Um, I always wonder about that, though, and I've talked to guys about this before, because like in baseball, same idea. 
what about when your catcher is now on the other team? So you're, 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 you're used to, as a pitcher working with him. He knows all your pitches. Now he's in the batter's box. You know, is there an advantage? Or like a coach leaving a staff like Zach Taylor. You would think he knows Sean McVay very well working underneath him for all those years. What happens when they go up against each other? Who has the advantage? He knows you. You know him. Similar here. Like Wiggins and Tatum, they trained with the game, same guy. You would think, yeah, as well as Wiggins may know Tatum's game, Tatum should know Wiggins' game or know that Wiggins knows Tatum's game and try to stay one step ahead. So I think it's a fair point, but I don't know if it's a good excuse because just like how he knows you so well, you should know him just as well. So who really has the advantage there? I don't know. I will say Tatum, it was clear that he always wanted to, when he wanted to drive, he always wanted to go with his right hand and he always put his head down. And it led to a lot of turnovers. So he did have a little bit of like a tell, like a pitcher, you know, tipping their pitches or a poker player. You knew when he wanted to go to the rim, which direction he was going. And then he put his head down and, you know, couldn't find the open guy. And you could come over and double team and he'd throw it away. But for Jason Tatum, I mean, it was a, a hugely disappointed, disappointing series. Certainly not some sort of superstar. And to me, the big, I guess, missing link, if I could say, from all the way here in South Carolina while they play in Boston, is that I think the fear of failure is the biggest ingredient in success. I think the greats have that. Jordan, Kobe, Tiger Woods, I think Tom Brady. That it's not so much about the money or fame. It's not even so much about the winning as it is the fear of not winning. Right? It's more about not winning, losing. Uh, not being successful. You always have those people that have their chip on the shoulders that grew up maybe like a tough upbringing. And now they're successful later on in life, but they're always concerned about they don't want to fail because they don't want to go back to or think that they would go back to how life was before they were successful. So they're so afraid of failure because of what it could potentially lead to or what it represents from the past in their life. And I just don't see that from Tatum. It's what I said earlier this week when trying to compare him to Kobe. Like Kobe would go down swinging at least. Tatum, I don't know, I didn't see a, a fear of failure from him this series. And I think that's what really drives these guys. It's not so much about winning or losing, right? Like um, my father coached basketball for a number of years. He would always say, right, he would stay up all night after a He can't sleep after a loss. You feel good after a win, but the pain of a, a loss is worse than the joy of a win. And I think that's what drives the all-time greats. As good as it feels to win a championship, I think you feel even worse. The emotions are even stronger when you don't win in a Michael Jordan, in a Kobe, in a Tom Brady. They're more ticked off when they don't win than they're happy when they do win, right, if you get what I'm saying. And for Tatum, and look, here I am, armchair psychiatrist from South Carolina watching on the TV. I just didn't see that drive, that fear of failure, because he failed a lot in this uh, series. To the point that in a lot of these games, it almost looked like he didn't want the ball in his hands in the fourth quarter. He wasn't shooting in the fourth quarter. He was supposed to be the leader in the fourth. He averaged three points in the fourth quarter of this series. That's not good enough. Where like a Kobe, a Jordan, a Brady, they wouldn't let that stuff happen. The fear of failure is what leads to great success. Tatum failed this series, and he didn't seem to be too afraid of, of uh, failing. Otherwise, I think he would have had a better performance. We have to hit a timeout, but uh, real quick, uh, his head coach, Ime Adoka, had this to say after the game. Maybe this is one of those you know, veiled messages for his young star. Yeah, it's going to hurt, and it, it'll hurt for a while, and probably you know that stuff never goes away. I've lost one before, and so... Um, that was part of the message. Uh, let it propel us forward. Uh, the experience and growth and progress that we made this season. Uh, obviously, getting to your ultimate goal and, and falling a few games short uh, is going to hurt. And there are a lot of guys in there, yeah, very emotional right now. So 
the message was, you know, we thank them for the effort and the growth and everything they allowed us to do coaching-wise this year. Um, and the biggest biggest message was learn from this, uh, grow from it, take this experience and see there is another level to get to with a team like Golden State who has been there, done that, and, and it was evident in a lot of ways. And just uh, don't come back the same as players, coaching staff, and uh, let this feel you throughout the offseason the next year. Ime Adoka after their season ended last night. By the way, I just found out yesterday Ime played for the MBDL team here in Charleston. What were they called? The Low Country, the Charleston Low Gators or something? I had no idea. Ime Adoka played here in the uh, in uh, the area in North Charleston, and he played with somebody who uh, usually plays pickup on Thursday nights where I was last night with the guys. By the way, I guess uh, a Portland Trailblazer was over there today to train. So, anyways, Ime Adoka, former. Um, Professional basketball player here in the Low Country. His season came to an end yesterday with the uh, Celtics, and Steph Curry gets that uh, important Finals MVP award and fourth championship. We'll see if Tatum can grow in to that superstar they could try to rely on down the road. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Finals in just a little bit with Jonathan Isaac, who's uh, currently in the league with the Orlando Magic. But when we come back, uh, who does Vegas like in certain college football games? I'll tell you. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll catch up with uh, NBA player Jonathan Isaac in a little bit. And get back to the NBA Finals. But first, let me sneak this in quickly. Um, you know, it's always interesting. So I have a friend who has never gambled on sports before, but he pays attention to Vegas and the lines and the movement more than anybody I know because it's a great indicator. So it's something I always reference will be the point spread or the movement of a point spread. And you may be listening, driving around, thinking, like, why do I care? I don't bet on sports. But it's more than just about betting. It's a great indicator of maybe what to uh, expect when it comes to the game, that season, that particular sport, that team, whatever it may be, you can uh, learn a lot. It's almost like uh, you know context clues. So anyways, they release, around this time of year, they put out 99 college football games, the spread, point spread for 99 uh, college football games. And, uh, and then as we move forward, we get more and more spreads of football games as we get closer to the season. But they start off with like the first 99, 99 of the bigger games. And right now, uh, there's 100%. They're calling it sharp action. The people that are betting on it are all the quote-unquote sharps, the professional gamblers, not just the average Joes like you or I. And already, a lot of lines have moved. So let's run through these real quick to give you an idea of who uh, Vegas seems to like in these matchups as we sit here in June. Alabama opened as a 12-point favorite against Texas for that game early in the year. That number has now moved up to 16, a four-point swing right away. And these games were just released within the past week. This is movement like on the first day, right? So everybody jumped on that, meaning they really like Alabama big. Alabama was originally favored by 12. All the pro bettors immediately took Alabama. So they think te- Alabama beats Texas, and they beat them big. That number has already been bet up to 16. Iowa, Iowa State, rivalry game. That opened up at Iowa favored by 13. It's now Iowa 7. So that tells you the gamblers like Iowa State. They've already cut that line almost in half. So Iowa, Iowa State, originally Vegas, the spread, uh, the sports books really high on Iowa. The gamblers, they like Iowa State more, or at least like that game to be closer. 
Uh, Virginia Tech and West Virginia. And they're playing one another for the first time in quite some time. Virginia Tech opened as an eight-point favorite. That line has now been moved down to three. So they really like West Virginia in that matchup with Virginia Tech, at least to keep it uh, really close. BYU opened up as a 24-point favorite against Utah State. That's now down to 19, so it's still a huge number. But from a betting perspective, they're on the side of Utah State. Air Force opened up as a 19-point favorite against Navy. That's now down to 12. So the betters liked Navy to keep it closer. Air Force opened as a 19-point favorite against Navy. It's now 12 points. A couple last ones. Alabama was favored by 6.5 against Tennessee to begin. That's been bet up to 10.5. So 6.5, that's a pretty small number. Tennessee has not beaten Alabama in 16 years. And uh, when those two get together this year, right, six and a half, Alabama was originally favored. The, the professional gamblers jumped all over that. They think Alabama will beat Tennessee by a lot, too, just like Texas. So that's moved to double digits now. Notre Dame opened up as a 20-point favorite against Stanford. That's been bet down to 15. So from a betting perspective, the gamblers like Stanford. And the last one, Utah, opened up as a 12-point favorite against USC. Right, a lot of people think USC wins the Pac-12. I've been telling you, I like Utah. Utah opened as a 12-point favorite against USC. But that number has been bet down to 7, which is a big swing. So the gamblers do like USC to at least keep it closer. They don't see as big of a gap between Utah and USC, uh, as big of a gap as the sports books. I know numbers don't always work, right, just running off a bunch of numbers. You go back and listen on the podcast if I move too quickly. But if you're a betting uh, individual, uh, that's uh, numbers of interest, even if you're just a football fan. The professionals think Alabama will blow out Texas and Tennessee and think USC is a little closer to Utah and West Virginia is a little closer to Virginia Tech. And this time of year, as we look ahead to the college football season, I always find that information somewhat interesting. When we come back, we'll catch up with Jonathan Isaac, member of the Orlando Magic, to talk about the NBA Finals. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today. Due to lack of hustle, deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. The Warriors finishing off the championship last night as Steph Curry gets his finals MVP. And joining us now is Jonathan Isaac, member of the Orlando Magic. He played at Florida State, was drafted sixth overall by uh, Orlando in 2017, has been with the Magic since. He's joining us now. Jonathan, good afternoon. How are you? My man, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing good. Hey, appreciate the time. Um, the Warriors finish off the finals last night. They win the final three games of this series after falling behind 2-1. to one. Were you surprised with how the, the way the series started, that then the Warriors just ran off these victories and finished it off in six last night? Def- definitely was surprised by the way it started. I wouldn't say completely surprised about the outcome, but I really wanted Boston to take it to seven games. I thought it would have been you know super exciting and interesting to see who would take it. What seemed to change, you know, the second half of the series? The Celtics were up 2-1, then the Warriors, again, were, you know, able to, to finish off the series. You know, you play in the league. From your perspective, did you see a big difference in the second half of the series? Definitely. The, the first half of the series, I was really locked in on Boston's size and feeling that it was really giving, you know, Golden State a lot of issues and that they'd be able to kind of uh, exercise on that and, and, and really take the series. But 
Golden State just they made shots, and I think they really you know brought a defensive intensity that messed with Brown, messed with Tatum, messed with the guys coming off the bench, and, and they were able to, to defensively win it. Talking with Jonathan Isaac, who by the way came out with a best-selling book a month ago today. I'll, I'll ask you about that, but but Jonathan, um, you know you've played against Golden State, you've had some good games against Golden State in your career. As you watch them win the championship last night, you know what's what's it what's it been like for you to compete against them? How tough of it? Uh, how tough is it to go up against a team like that in the Warriors? It's it's really tough, partly because they just they play such a unique brand of basketball. Having uh, Curry and Clay out there, and having Draymond as like this this point four guy, and everybody else just rebounds and shoots. Um, so it's it's just a different dynamic when you're going up against them, and they're so locked in, they're so tied together, and they really do a great job defensively. And so you you really have to be ready, ready. You really have to like scheme for them specifically, and and that's what gives teams so many problems. Now I know you haven't played in the NBA Finals yet, but you did play in the postseason when you were 21. You know, pretty early on in your career. When you look at the Celtics team, they were very young. Their first NBA Finals. These guys were pretty inexperienced. How big a role do you think that plays? You know, take me back to when you played in the playoffs for the first time. How different is the postseason for a young guy compared to the regular season? Man, it, it's like night and day. It really is so different. Um, it, it, experience is such a big part of it. And when Boston had won that first game, you know, a lot of people were coming out and saying, oh, forget about experience. They're ready for this. Um, but as you get later and later in these series, especially in the finals, experience wins games. And I think that uh, Golden State really showed that. So, um, it's definitely, I'm sure it's a learning experience for Boston, and they're going to come back better than ever because they've gained the experience of it. But for me, it was like, it, it was a wake-up call because it's like you, you go through the regular season and then you hit the playoffs never experiencing it before. And it's, I remember we finished the first game. We won the first game of our t- Toronto series when I was playing um, in the postseason for the first time. And I was like, we have to do that three more times because I was so spent and so exhausted by getting that one win, and they just came back like they had did it a million times. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. As we talk with Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic. Now, unfortunately, of course, right because of the injury, the ACL injury, you've been out the last two years. So I guess you can try to relate to what we saw from Clay Thompson, who missed so much time, comes back and, and plays. You've been going through it, rehabbing an injury, looking forward to seeing you back out there uh, the next season at this point, this upcoming season. But when you watch Clay Thompson, uh, you know, is that some, you know, maybe a form of inspiration to see a guy miss so much time, go out there and still play well on a big stage? Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking to do the same thing that they did, <laughs> come out the gate and win the championship. So, um, you know, that, that's what we'll be focused on for next season. And, and definitely seeing that helps me to just, you know, continue to stay positive and focused on coming back and helping this team win games. The Magic uh, won the draft lottery, so they get the first pick in the draft. Is somebody already on the team? You know, do you pay a lot of attention now to the draft? Is that exciting for you to see that uh, the organization will be adding a, a talented player here in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely paying attention to it. You know, they're, they're going through the workouts, different workouts right now. And um, it's just exciting. There's a buzz in the gym. There's a buzz in the city, you know, coming up for next season. And everybody on the team is excited about who, who, who they're going to pick and who is about to be a part of the family. Yeah, I, I can imagine so. Talking with Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic. Now, what's fascinating is, is not only are you – you know, a great NBA player, but you also now are becoming a very good author with a national bestseller. You came out with a book called Why I Stand, which was released uh, a month ago um, today, and uh, you can pick up the book wherever you get your books. Now, you're an athlete, so you probably, you're used to dealing with this, but, you know, the book Why I Stand, um, has it been difficult facing uh, pushback while you stand up for your beliefs? I'm sure as an athlete, you deal with it in your playing career anyways, but has it been a challenge to deal with that, the pushback that you maybe have received over the years, you know, for just uh, believing in, in what you do believe in? 
Yeah, I, I would say it's definitely been a challenge. It's been something that I've kind of grown up in uh, understanding how to deal with and then just continuing to focus on what it is that I believe in the same way that, you know, other people are focusing on what they believe in. And so, uh, it, you know, it definitely hasn't been completely easy, but, you know, being able to have a tangible book that people are saying that they're being encouraged and inspired by to stand up for what they believe in, it definitely makes it all worth it. Uh, yeah, I could imagine so. And again, as an athlete, I'm sure it certainly helps in an area like that. Uh, as an athlete, I don't know if you ever had plans of writing a book. What was the process like for you when you sit down and you actually go through it? I'm sure it's a, a bit of an exhausting process. What was it like to just you know simply write a book and get it completed? I never in a million years would have thought that uh, an author would be in my future. I mean, especially a, a best-selling author at that. I didn't even know how that process worked. But, um, you know, just having the right people around me and being able to put the pieces together. But at the, like being able to sit down and actually write through the book and do all that stuff, it was exhausting. Um, it was overwhelming. It was it was funny at times, fun at times, but just a lot of mixed emotions. And, you know, being able to find a new, a new something inside of me that is a creative side of me that I didn't know was there was definitely, um, you know, surreal. The book is Why I Stand by Jonathan Isaac. What do you hope that people, uh, as they as they get the book, and obviously a lot of people already have, it's a national bestseller, uh, what do you hope is uh, you know like the main takeaway for those that do read the book? Well, I, I, the, the main takeaway that I want is when, when I decided to stand in the bubble, there was people with, with so many different opinions, people who, who disagree with me, people who agree with me, but, again, people with just opinions. And so what, what I would want them to take away is that they'll be able to see exactly where I was coming from, that when I decided to stand and say that I believe that Jesus is the answer for the problems that we see, I wasn't just saying it just to say it. I was saying it because he's been the answer for me. And that's what the book is all about. My journey from a young kid who struggled with anxiety, fear, self-insecurity to a man that's willing to stand up for what he believes in because of what he's experienced. And so I just want people to take that away from me, take away, you know, who Jonathan Isaac is and how he got to that moment in the first place and then get all the details and the behind the scenes of how tense and how hectic and crazy that moment really was um, and everything that went into it. Before we let you go, as we now, you know, the finals is over, so we turn our attention to the draft. You were a high-end prospect. You went six overall in the draft. Take me back to, to around this time five years ago. What was it like? What is it like for these players right now, you know, looking forward to the draft? The, you, you mentioned anxiety, the, the anxiety of seeing when you're going to be picked, who's going to take it. What is this experience like this time of year for somebody prepping, you know, to be picked high in the uh, upcoming draft? It's, it's definitely nerve-wracking, and even when you know you're going high or you're going to be top 10, it's still nerve-wracking, and what the people around you are telling you is just to find ways to enjoy it. So your family's around you, your friends are around you, and you just try to kind of relax in the moment, but you can't. Your, your life is about to change forever. Everybody around you knows that your life is about to change forever, and so all of these things are going on in your mind. What's next? What's, what's the NBA going to be like? My teammates, my coaches, everything like that, and so... Um, you know, you just finding ways to relax in it. But I think being nervous is a part of it, and so you just got to go through it. I know a lot of people. I don't know Leonard Hamilton personally, but I know a handful of guys who worked with him at Florida State before you got there. I imagine you enjoyed uh, your season there playing for Leonard Hamilton at Florida State? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they've, they've done a remarkable job of being able to, you know, turn the program around and, and, and pretty much take FSU to a basketball school after being a football powerhouse for so long. And so just, you know, kudos to Coach Ham and, you know, the coaching staff that has done such a great job. He's Jonathan Isaac, a member of the uh, Orlando Magic. Um, as uh, we wrapped up the NBA Finals last night, the Celtics winning the East. So now, Jonathan, as we look forward to your return for, for the Magic, uh, as you would say, when you look at Orlando, sorry to put you on the spot, but what are we looking at? How far removed are you guys from the Boston Celtics right now in that Eastern Conference heading into next year? 
You know, we, we have such a young team, but we have a team that is full of guys that are thirsty and hungry to get better. And, and what we were missing was just, you know, we, we went through a ton of injuries, went through a ton of COVID stuff. But this year is going to be the first year, um, you know, praying no injuries or anything like that. But we're able to really put it all together, plus adding in that number one pick. And so, um, you know, I, I can't give you a projection right now, but I can't wait to just get everybody in here together and, and see what we can really make this thing. But I see ourselves going all the way down the road and just uh, building upon what we've done so far. Last thing before we let you go. Uh, we've talked so much about Steph Curry, how hard he is to guard. You're obviously a big guy, so you're guarding other types of players. In your career so far, who have you found to be some of the toughest guys to try to match up when you're on the defensive end? Well, the toughest guys for me are, are just the big guys that can do it all. You know, KD, PG, uh, Jason Tatum, guys that are, you know, bigger that can, you know, take you off the dribble, hit those tough pull-up jumpers and step backs and all that stuff. So, um, that's been the toughest for me to guard, but at the same time, they're, they're the funnest ones to guard for me. He's Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic, and now a bestseller author as well. The book is Why I Stand. It came out a month ago today, so pick it up wherever you get your books. Jonathan, appreciate the time. Looking forward to seeing you back out on the court when uh, the NBA comes back around next season, and congratulations on the success of your book. Thank you so much, my man. Thank you for having me. Hey, pleasure's all ours. Appreciate it. Jonathan Isaac of the Magic. Appreciate the time. Um... He played pretty well, too, against the Warriors. Didn't face Draymond. Draymond was out for those guys. I would have loved to have asked him what it's like to uh, go up against Draymond Green because Draymond is uh, certainly one of those guys. He's the classic example of you love him when he's on your team, you hate him when he's not. And if it wasn't for Draymond, I think the Warriors would be really likable. I think the reason why people dislike the Warriors, other than just because they're very successful, is kind of because of Draymond. But I was happy to see the Warriors finish off. By the way, let me tell you, let me pat myself on the back here on the Mar Midday Show because no one else is going to do it. Uh, Trent, as he said, went. You went what? Finished eight and one in your prop bets. Eight and one in the prop bets, no big deal. We both had Warriors and six. That's correct. So if you tailed that at the start of the series, that was a winner. And uh, I gave you a pick against the spread every day, uh, every game day. And a lot of people will give you picks on the shows. Don't actually do it. I can tell you, I made the same bets that I gave you here on the show. And uh, good thing I did because against the spread, I was five and one. In the finals. So Trent went 8-1 and one in the last three games. We have to go back and see about the other ones. Maybe they were just as good. 5-1 uh, and one against the spread. We both had Warriors in six. I told you Tatum's not a superstar. Now everyone's coming around on that. <laughs> we nailed the NBA finals around here in the Mar Midday Show. Let me tell you. I think it started, our, our heater horse started yeah. in, the, uh, in the conference finals games where I had a couple good ones with the Heat, and uh, you, you, know, you were getting dialed in on the Warriors-Mavs series. You knew that one was ended pretty quickly. So, I mean, folks, we're just a money-making machine over here at That's the Mar right. Midday Show. You better listen up. Absolutely. I had a um, – up until the finals, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. I had about an even playoffs. It was, it was tough at times to predict. I wish this finals uh, was an 11-game series because <laughs> I, I guess I just saw things clearly. I also took the under every game, and the under went 4-2. and two. Now, I didn't give that out in the show, but I bet that personally. 4-2 and two on the unders, 5-1 and one against the spread. Hit uh, two parlays last night. We were crushing the finals. So hopefully, if uh, you're somebody who plays along as well, Hopefully you had a successful NBA playoffs run. No, Luke, I like how, and same for me with the props, I bet everything that I say yes. on this show. you know. And some people, like you mentioned on other uh, programs, uh, do not do the same. So I'm glad we are honest with our picks. We ride with the people, Luke Mar. Right. And we're bragging right now because we had a good <laughs> run. But I'm always trans – I keep track of my record, and uh, I've had losing football seasons on the picks on the show, and I, keep, I tell you my record every Friday. Instead, uh, most shows uh, don't keep track of their records because their picks usually aren't very good. So uh, I'm fair. 
That's why when I'm bad, I'll tell you I'm doing bad. But when I'm good, I'm also going to brag about it. And we had a pretty good NBA Finals. So we're bragging right now, heading into the weekend, heading into a nice summer weekend with a little Frosé money uh, after last night. So there you go. Hey, when we come back, we'll wrap up your week on a Friday afternoon. Uh, it's the Moore Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Yo, what up? What's the word, big fella? Everything's good on this end. Hey, Luke, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Luke. Hey, man. Pleasure to be on your show. I'm doing great, but I'm hoping you could call me Boca Baby. Great show. You did a good job. Hey, you're turning into rapidly my favorite person I've interviewed with, and I've done like 50 of these in the last week. You've done your homework. I like it. I absolutely like it. I love that. Another great thought. You've done your homework, haven't you? Good job. You've always getting big stars and important people on. That's great to hear. We like to hear the interviews. You know, it's uncanny how you do this, Luke. And I don't know how you do Because, you know, I do this gauntlet of radio on Thursdays where I do all these different cities. Many of them need their hosts to have me give them some talking points. You hit all my talking points every week. <laughs> it's, it's uncanny how good you are. Always great talking football with you, Luke. Appreciate you guys being right. Very impressive. just want to say, I find you the low country Colin Coward. You use common sense with statistics, and you combine them, and you think outside the box. Shout out to all the people itself that support the show. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> Da-da-da-da. Go ahead, boy. That's how you bring it on. Is this a sports show or a dancing show? I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what we're doing around here. Lunch with Luke for three hours, then you playing go. On the Morrow Midday Show. Told them you were living downtown. Driving all the old men crazy. Wrapping up your Friday on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. As we get ready for a summer weekend, hopefully you have uh, something fun planned this weekend. Hopefully it doesn't involve any work. And, of course, Father's Day coming up on Sunday. So for those fathers out there, hopefully you have a great day. And for those celebrating their fathers, hopefully uh, well, you do something great as well for your fathers out there. Talked about it yesterday. Right? But I think for most sports fans, most, not all, a lot of sports fans, right? that, that love of the sport is kind of... Uh, uh, built through the upbringing with uh, with maybe your father. Playing sports, practicing, even just watching the games, going to games, those are always some of the best uh, highlights of childhood. Going to a game with your father or just having a catch out in the front yard. So happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there this weekend. Hey, if you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast available online at charlestonsportsradio.com where you can also stream the show as well. You can always stream the show through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or also through our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least eight different states and multiple countries. Have a great weekend. Happy Father's Day to all those celebrating this weekend. And come Monday, we'll have the Moro Midday Show from CSL Plasma in North Charleston for Donor Appreciation Week. Life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again Monday from North Charleston. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio.